Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Montage! What do you think about the, if we could break it down and get the the psychoanalytical perspective maybe, or the, I don't know, socio-cultural mm-hmm. perspective of the whole Me Too movement, why that finally now came to break through in the way that it has, what mm-hmm. it's achieved, mm-hmm. the positives, perhaps on the flip side, mm-hmm. the negatives if there are any. Mm-hmm. I know that's a huge <laughs> we could go on area for, for you to hours get into. and hours, but... And you have to um, excuse my ignorance sort of... Uh, language and and questioning because it's no i think that's a very valid question like why now why did it turn out the way it did how has this affected things and i think there are a lot of positives people are listening to women more women are getting fairer wages especially in the entertainment industry we're seeing a lot more of this in entertainment um people are more hypersensitive to treatment of women and why things are happening the way they're happening but on the other side um i think that men are scared I think people might be more hesitant to be themselves or do their jobs the way they always have done them. Um, but for that reason, I think we should all be curious. Like, for example, today I read in the I read the new the paper newspaper. I like real paper. I don't do everything on my phone. It's I have a real calendar. Yeah. So I was just at a diner reading the paper, and I noticed that there was a gynecologist that had a, his license suspended because he was taking medical photos. They weren't for personal or sexual use. Um, and that some women felt uncomfortable with things he said, like, you have wonderful skin or your skin is beautiful in a non-sexual way. Now, when I see the headline for this, gynecologist suspended over possible harassment, 
oh, that sounds terrible. A person harassing a woman should be suspended. But when you read the fine detailed, actually the facts that were presented in this article, and this is all I know is from what was in this article, is that this person was probably doing their job. If I had a doctor that told me I had great skin in a non-sexual way, I think that's an objective observation. But because of this movement, I don't think that if it wasn't at this time that this doctor would have been suspended. So I think that some of it goes very far and we have to be very cautious on what we what assumptions we allow ourselves to make based on limited information that we have about people. And so much of the responsibility of that is within the hands of the press, isn't it? Absolutely. And so much of the irresponsible. People like you. No, <laughs> it yeah, right? starts with you. But it's true. That it's responsible journalism. Yeah. And no matter what journalism you're presented with or what information you're presented with, it's our responsibility as free thinking individuals to take that information and say, is this a re- reliable source? Is this bias? Is this something that's accurate? Does this actually violate somebody? Because there's so much misinformation out there and persuasive journalism or persuasive information in the news. Everything's written to make you think or feel something, whether it's intentional as a persuasive article or presentation, or maybe it's an unconscious bias somebody has because we all have them. So any information we're taking in has been filtered through somebody writing it, somebody presenting it, and we just have to be aware and and take responsibility for our own perceptions and reactions. I mean, like I said, I come back all these years later and I make no apologies for who I am. I brought the band back in 2013 out of a desperate health diagnosis in which I thought I was never going to walk again or I was never going to sing again. And the story, like, is so crazy that... It puts all of this bullshit to shame. It's like for 10 years, my dad, who loved to sing, was like, when are you going to get back on stage? I was like, I don't think I'm ever going to get back on stage, dad. And then I got this diagnosis where um, my neck was disintegrating, my vertebrae, and my spinal cord has been compromised, and I'm losing my ability to walk, but the surgery that I had to have, they go through the front of the neck. And the amount of damage was so great that they would have to move the esophagus aside and I would never sing again. This was in 2013. And I had had a lot of injuries on the road um, from just touring nonstop in the 90s. And I had suffered for a long time and I didn't have insurance, so I didn't know what was going on until 2013 when I got married and I got great insurance and I was like, let's check this out. And uh, yeah, it was, I had three doctors say, so do you want to walk or do you want to sing? That was the choice, I obey. That was the choice, three doctors. And one of them actually said, well, when was the last time you put out a record anyway? And I just remember, my sister was with me and I remember we walked to the car and we sat there in silence for a moment and she said, well, what do you think? This was like the third diagnosis of, you know, doctors saying the same shit. And then I was like, 
I can't imagine if I have kids one day never being able to sing to them. I said, we're going to, we got to figure this out. She's like, yep, we're going to figure it out. So we ended up finding a team of doctors who were just daring enough to go through the back of my neck. And they sort of changed the game for my condition and the treatment for my condition um, in a lot of ways. My neck was completely rebuilt from the back. But before I went under, um, you know, as they were like shaving my head and putting screws in my temples, um, I said to my dad, like, if I wake up from this, if I can still walk and I can still sing, then I'll fucking bring the band back for you, dad. So I did. I woke up and I was like, shit. <laughs> so I did. And, you know, the original intention was to get all the guys back together. That wasn't what happened, obviously. Um, Why was that? After you've been through such a traumatic and incredible experience and recovery. Because none of that matters to any of them. It never mattered to them. So friendship isn't on the cards. You're... Never. It was with me. It was always a different. There was always a different set of rules. You guys are homies and brothers. And that's Monique. Do you think yeah. Gwen had the same experience? I don't know. I don't know. Because that was another band from the same time and the yeah. same scene. And... Yeah, I don't know. You know, all I know is that I just wanted everybody to like me all the time and I just wanted to make everybody happy all the time and that was really all I wanted to do um, and so you know I had this surgery um, the plan was to bring the band back um, it for whatever reason it wasn't assumedly it's not because you didn't ask them correct it wasn't the plan wasn't to their liking. I, I don't know how else to explain it, except okay. it just didn't work out how I wanted it to. But I really, you tried. I did, but I also knew that I didn't have to fucking try. Like, if you guys were going to be assholes about it, if you weren't going to have any respect for me, if you were going to try and hire the wrong sort of clientele, um, sort of, um, you know, management or bookers or whatever, um, sorry. I'm not hiring your buddies to, you know, like rip cash, us, cash in, cash on in and rip us, us off. Like we're, we're going to do this the right way on our terms. Yeah. And if you don't like it, you don't have to come with me, but, but I'm doing it regardless. Yeah. I'm doing it regardless, but I want you there. And so, you know, whatever happened after that happened, but, uh, I spent two and a half years I earned the rights to the name. They're mine. It was not easy. I fought for it. Not cheap either, I imagine. It wasn't cheap. <laughs> and uh, But, you know, like if something's meant to happen and your heart is in the right place, then... It's worth fighting for. Well, not just that, but the universe sees to it that you get what you need. And so my heart was in the right place. When I woke up from that surgery and I said, all right, Dad, I'm bringing the band back, it wasn't because I wanted to show the world that I could learn how to literally hold my head up again literally had to relearn how to hold my head up again because the muscle that holds up your entire head had been cut through in half I didn't I it was important for me to show the world that I could recover in four months 
it was important to me because there were people who loved Save Ferris. And I only realized that after the backlash occurred when I, you know, said I was bringing the band back and shit, people were passionate about it. And I was like, wow, thank you, TMZ. Thank you, Perez Hilton. Thank you, Hometown Press, because I understand now how important this is to everybody. And now I have a purpose. So I want to know your best rock and roll story. Top of the list, number one. Oh, like man. if you're in a pub and someone comes up to you, like a fan, yeah, and they want to be impressed by like the craziest, coolest story you've got. Man, we've 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 had a, or top three, a few of the enough. ultimate ones. <laughs> Have you? Okay, well, uh, come on. <laughs> one of the most controversial ones we ever had was at a festival in Germany. There was like this weird altercation that went down, where it ended up. One of the crew guys from Slayer, our manager managed Motorhead too, and he ended up getting a fight with our manager, and then somehow we ended up in the middle of it, and then it ended up us versus Slayer in this huge fight. Straight up. And it was you the craziest Terry thing. King. Well, it was their crew, but the greatest thing in the world is like, it was such a weird misunderstanding that I grew up I grew up following Slayer show to show they're like my favorite band ever so when this is going down I'm like no I love Slayer we ended up later on that night in their dressing room it was Tom Araya's birthday we're eating Tom Araya's birthday cake and singing happy birthday to him and drinking tequila shots or with, with black eyes and broken noses no but like <laughs> honestly like uh, none of us got hit but <laughs> that means you won. No, no, no. Then <laughs> a Slayer got hit either. It was, it was basically a, our fun. manager at the time said some said some stuff and upset some of them. And I mean, and you guys did the right thing and supported your guy. And we just tried to break up the fight, right? But it ended up being like this weird thing. But it, because it was such a dumb misunderstanding, I got to have birthday cake with my favorite band in the world and do tequila shots with Carrie King. And it was like I, I'll never forget that. It was like the most awesome thing ever. So because we don't really fit in the genre of Slayer, yeah. When but they can still be my goddamn favorite band, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. they straight up off. Yeah, yeah. Them and well, I listen to everything. So them and Jawbreaker, those are like my two favorites. Wow, so. that's a wide chart. Yeah, yeah. So okay, you mentioned you had a few. There's one. Give me yeah. two more. Um, <laughs> I'm just I really crazy. like Lagwagon a lot. No, I mean fucking rock and roll stories. Oh, okay. I don't um, know what bands you like. That's I mean that's interesting. But. Yeah. Fight to Slayer Jeez. is way cooler. Yeah, in, in that the one, ones that you can tell. But see that one, that one progressed. Like I'll tell part two of it because okay. <laughs> so the the tour manager Slayer didn't know it was squashed. So the next day we were playing a festival in Austria, and we have some friends that playing uh, Green Day's band, and they came Green up Day's to us. Band. Yeah. Oh, I was like yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. And they came up to us going, "Hey, man, we were told like." If if something goes down, there's a big conflict between Slayer and Zebrahead. <laughs> if something goes down, why did Blabbermouth not pick this up? <laughs> it's, it's seriously. If something goes down, we need we have to stay out of it. I just want you guys to know about this. And we're like, what? 
we had birthday cake and shots with them last night, and now all of a sudden Green Day knows that there was a feud between Zebrahead and Slayer. Green like really, Day Slayer in. would fucking kill us, by the way, because we don't know how to fight. We're the biggest. There are more of you. Uh, there's way yeah, more you of would, them. You wouldn't want to get Matty involved, would you? I mean, I love no, Matty. No, we're, we're definitely not fighters. They would they would definitely kill us. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. This was a huge misunderstanding. But then now, one of my other favorite bands, Green Day, hears this story. And, and, they're, thinks, and they're like, we should support our Bay Area friends, right? Yeah. Fuck these OC guys. You basically, they were just like, oh, well, if it goes down, we were told to stay out of this. And we're like, there is no beef. There is no anything, really. Like, it was a misunderstanding. Like, no, 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 it's all good. And then, so it... Then we all kind of ended up hanging out that night too, drinking more tequila and having fun. Amazing. So that that went a, a weekend of weirdness, you know. Yeah. You don't know it yet Got a sick string Best friends just with the broken neck Wanna make my more I change the world With this flow But all this doubt in my head Is just no one to lock my door Shut out all the world Surrounding me Yeah, let me go How do you feel about being an American at the moment? I was chatting to my friend, not to go too political. But oh, I, I don't I was, mind. <laughs> I was chatting to my friend last night about it and he was like, dude, I feel so fucking ashamed and guilty mm-hmm. and i'm like well you can't feel guilty because it's not your fault that this guy is in power but right. it must be a difficult time i mean it's not exactly all roses in england with brexit and everything like that happening over there as well it seems like there's a lot of division in both our countries yeah at the moment right yeah yeah um i you know it, it's weird being in a position where if you say things like i think everyone should have equal rights or I think I don't I don't think it's a good idea when children are getting shot at school or you know these things that just seem like any reasonable person would say would agree with this and all of a sudden that that makes you a radical left wing liberal you know these are all like to me I just don't understand what the other side of these arguments are uh I'm a big supporter of free speech uh I mean I if you want to be a racist or you decide you don't like gay people or whatever your deal is you actually have the right to feel that way but when you start legislating against people's rights that's where i draw the line you know what i mean we we, everyone is supposed to be equal in this country that's what the, the country was founded on your country as well that's a that's a right that people hold dearly um and yeah it's just a very odd time i think a lot of people in middle America are busy working their jobs and trying to keep food on their table and and support their family. So they don't have a ton of time to absorb every nook and cranny of politics. And, you know, the general culture of those areas is pro gun, pro Bible, uh, a little anti gay, you know, that's just what they're, which, you know, it's what they're brought up. That's what they're brought up. Yes. So, So if you have two choices of what channel you're going to watch, you're going to watch Fox News because that's where your general way of thinking is. But unfortunately, there's so much sort of propaganda now being fed through that channel, and that's how most people in middle America are getting their news. I just And accepting it as fact. Yeah, I mean, he has 
he has a 40% approval rating right now. And that's the part that's hard for me to reconcile because it's one thing if this guy just kind of duped a bunch of people and wound up in office yeah. and whatever, however deep you want to go into how he got into office. Um, but it's another thing to look at that approval rating and go, Almost half of the country. He has literally divided the country. He lies every single day, and and you can find evidence of this by, oh, he said that yesterday, and now he's saying this. Constant lying, uh, and people still support it. And so that's the hard part for me to sort of deal with. That's the part that breaks my heart the most, is that there are that many people in this country that, at the very least, are terrible judges of character, but at... But more than that, could just be like, oh, well, so it, it's disenfranchised. Well, so. or just ex- maybe that's where we're at now. Maybe it's okay. I mean, we we this sort of capitalist culture of do anything to get to the top, and everything's about being wealthy and successful and power and all this kind of stuff. I think there are people that think like, well, every president lies, or every corporate guy steps on people to get to the top, or and and that's just become like this acceptable thing with some people that that's okay, or that's part of being a man, or. Or whatever, and uh, I don't know. It's it's weird. It's 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 especially weird living in Los Angeles. I mean, if you ever look at a map of people that vote blue or Democratic, it's people that live in cities. It's people that live with diversity every day. They they live with gay people. They live with Muslims. They live with different you know people of color. And we like it. We like living in a city that's multicultural. It's these people that live in these small towns. Like I grew up in a small town that's eighty percent white, and that's one of the towns that Trump went to on his tour. You know, his little rally tour. Um, and th- those are good people that I grew up with, but they just don't have a lot of experience. I didn't have experience. I mean, I didn't know. I I didn't know a gay person until I moved to LA. I didn't know. You know what I mean? I, there was maybe like one Jewish kid in the school. There was like two black kids in the school. You know, that's what a lot of these people are living with. Um, but those people that don't have a lot of experience with other people are taught to fear or to blame these people. But when you live in a city, you look around and you say, oh, we're all just people. Fuck people who tell other people what they can and can't say, yeah, think, bro. feel. And I think that a lot of... And I often have a go at, like, the kind of... The left wing. And I'm the most liberal person you could ever meet. But I have yeah. a problem with left wing people who tell other people that they can't say or do these things. things and it's like, man. that is the same as fascism. Yeah, That bro. kind of control and that imposition of regulation and, like, collective guilt bullshit. Yeah, you can't do that, bro. It's like... One, you know, art form I respect a lot is stand-up comedy because you know it's they, the last free art form. The last free art form. They don't have any music behind them. Yeah, they go on a stage with a microphone and just make you laugh, and you know that's tough and make as you fuck. think as well. If and if make you good. think, 
And you know that's hard to just sit up there with a mic, no beat to move the people or nothing, and they go do their thing. And now people are trying to silence them. Like Jerry Seinfeld was like, "What the fuck? I can't go to college and say certain things." Like, what the fuck are you trying to silence me for, bro? This is comedy, mm-hmm. you know. And you can't shut that down, you know, with all the politically correct whatever shit. You got to be able to speak your mind. And in this day and age, I respect anybody who speaks their mind freely and says what they feel. You know, you might have to get the backlash with it, but at the same time, I respect it. I think you're going to get inevitable backlash, but if you can live with that, then I think that you should fucking yeah. just put yourself out there in that way. Exactly. Can we tease the working title for your album that you oh, were going to call it? Title. Talking about political correctness, or would you rather hold that back and I'll hold you, that? Back you hold that back. Now, you, you don't just want to bust that out because yeah, you got something still there. In working <laughs> okay, let's move yeah. down to the next song on that set list of yours. So we go from is it the closed casket Lock song next? Already closed casket. Fuck around put you inside a closed casket you know what i'm saying i'm just speaking about real shit this is my feelings about i want to fuck you up a lot of these fucking cops who killing black kids or whatever you know they killing fucking minorities and getting away with it no justice it's like bro I, if that was me or my family i've got to find that person and we gonna have to fucking fight you know what I'm saying? And that's just my feeling toward that whole situation and these police doing what they do. And it's a scary thing when we can't walk around without, you know, feeling protected by the police. You know, it's a weird thing. it says thing. on their car, serve and protect, or to serve and to protect. To serve and protect, you know what I'm saying? So it's like... If you're white. Yeah, if you're white. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's crazy, bro, because, like, some of those situations you mess with mine my family or something like that bro it's all day i'm gonna be at you could care less about the consequences in a situation if my per my people didn't do anything wrong you shoot them for no reason oh it should be like all kind of backlash from our community from that community whatever it should be all kind of back that person should be scared as fuck to walk the street on some shit but a lot of these police kill somebody of another color and they get money you know, they get a GoFundMe to help them out and all kind of stuff like this. So this is the weird situation we in in life. And we have to sit back and look at it like, well, yo, what's going on? So that's just my feelings. That's my hardcore feelings on some shit, bro. Like, don't fuck with me on no shit like that. If it's not too much of a stretch, it seems to me like your life's work has been and your life itself has been a quest really for sincerity and authenticity and loyalty and friendship and family. It seems like those core values of the community that you're a part of really, you know, mean a lot to you and you practice your life in that way as an honoring of those things. Do you think that would be safe to say? For sure. I mean, I do my best, you know, I, I feel... I feel really lucky that um, when I started playing music, you know, as as a young kid, you know, it was more of just a pure rebellion, you know. It was something my parents didn't support, and I battled everyone and everything around me, you know. Um, Where do you think that came from? Just, I mean, I I think it's just part of 
growing up, every kid goes through, you know, in those early, early years where, you know, you're still a bit confused as to where you fit in. You know, you're, if not completely (laughs) confused as to where you fit in. And uh, nothing around you makes sense um, in terms of what people are trying to teach you or tell you or, or, you know, and every once in a while, somebody may say something that'll bend your ear enough to make you think. And but for the most part, for me, I mean, as a young kid growing up, you know, religion was really pushed on me and I didn't it didn't feel right. And so I fought the church, you know, was that from uh, one of your parents? Yeah, 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 sure. And, you know, I grew up in, in religious and Christian schools and, you know, I just, I fought the authority. I, I just, everything, I just rebelled against everything. And, you know, I found skateboarding at a young age and all the music that came along with it. Punk and rock, it, early thrash, hip hop, all yeah, of that. Yeah, I mean, back then, you know, I mean, we're talking like late 80s. So it was just a big melting pot. For sure, yeah. Beastie Boys, Metallica. It was Beastie Boys and, yeah, Bad Brains and Megadeth and Metallica and Minor Threat. I mean, like, whatever. And uh, But it it all registered to me and it all made sense. And that that was what kind of pulled me into wanting to play music. You know, I realized that there was, like, expression in the rebellion you know what i mean like you know the purpose to it. a purpose yeah. you know because the rebellion i felt was extremely lonely and very you know i i didn't i felt alone and uh and i found that and i found some unity in that i found like-minded people and people that felt the same way i i would read lyrics you know that registered to me and made me feel the same way well years later i kind of you know not too long but a few years later i feel lucky that i met some people um who taught me and showed me that like playing music and being in a band because i never even thought about being in a band then it was just more about i just want to turn everything up as loud tapped into that energy yeah you know just beat on the thing until i can't feel my fingers anymore you know and uh i mean not much has changed in that (laughs) aspect but uh i mean i i met some people who taught me that being in a band was and playing the music was there was a lot more to it than just you know than just being in a band or being popular or being, you know, making money or meeting girls or whatever the other people, other kids that I was around were in bands, the reasons that they were in bands for, you know, uh, you know, these people taught me that, uh, music was a, could, was about therapy or could be about therapy you know, so to me, all of a sudden, everything kind of turned where it wasn't so much that my mind was set on rebellion. It was just set on becoming a better person, you know, and I mean, I'll be the first one to admit I've I've made just a boatload of mistakes throughout my life, you know, but I can't I, I look back on it all and I can't have any regrets whatsoever you know i'm really comfortable and 
I feel a lot of joy for where I'm at now. I have a beautiful wife and a wonderful son and I love my life and I love my friends and I love the music that I'm a part of and the community that I'm a part of. And I feel if I made any decision differently, even through all the rotten, rotten paths that I took, you know, in, in those days that, you know, it, it could be different, you know, so I can't looking at it that way. I can't have any regrets at all. But, um, you know, when I found that, uh, playing music could, could be a way to overcome my own battles and my own obstacles, it just opened up a entire new world to me and, uh, yeah, it changed my life forever. go on me now with this tangent if we did away with corporations and political powers and mm-hmm. just gave people the chance to govern themselves obviously it's a very idealized no it works perfect world, but- it works great and i'll tell you exactly i just watched this uh documentary it was a, a short film on this town in mexico and it's in the state of michoacan where i've been a lot i think it's in northern michoacan and it's a city of about twenty thousand people and they were being overrun by these loggers that were coming in and raping their forests, um, raping their women, reporters being disappeared. Anybody who spoke up was being killed and disappeared, and the local politicians were in on it, and cartel was involved. And in 2011, in this city, and of course I can't think of the name right now, but you can look it up in Mexico, Michoacan, they made politics illegal. And they kicked out every fucking politician, every fucking cop, Every fucking person that was involved in anything. In 2011. 2011, they did this. And so I just watched the update. And from 2018, I can tell you, they have not had one murder, not one kidnapping, nothing. They went back to the old uh, tribal way of governance. And a city of 20,000 people, every night, in every neighborhood, there's a bonfire. And in that little bonfire, the men and the elders, the men and women will sit around and talk. And each neighborhood, each barrio, self-elects one representative from that neighborhood to represent them in weekly and monthly meetings in the whole community, making up a governing body of about two or 300 people, representing 20,000 people. That's pretty good. Now, and they're up for re-election every week. Every week they're up for re-election, and they're not paid, they're not nothing. They are citizen volunteers from all walks of life. And anyone who comes into the town... They have to remove political stickers off their cars. No politics are allowed. They fired everyone. So we don't need a government. And guess what the police force is? Total volunteer. They cannot be corrupted because they have to answer every week to these citizen tribunals. And they volunteer as well. Each, you know, young middle-aged dude who would normally be, the, you know, of a good age to do that spends two fucking days a week out guarding the town with big-ass rifles to not let any fucking person in. <laughs> And they're like, this is how we did it for our recorded history forever, thousands of years. And we didn't have any problems. And so now this is catching on and every town in Mexico is starting to have this campaign. Look, 
The problem is just the politicians and the cartel. It's not the people. And the businesses. And the business, yeah, corporations yeah, yeah. and the politicians. Yeah. We don't need them. And the forest is growing back. They've replanted the whole forest. Everyone is, you know, they, they have weekly and, oh, and they say, well, what do you do about normal crimes? Yeah, if you beat your wife or drive drunk, it's public humiliation and uh, community service. The most effective forms. If you drive drunk and crash, they're going to tie you up in the town square and everybody come by. Old school fucking, medieval style, uh, yeah. Not torture, but just yeah, yeah, put yeah, you yeah, out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Hey, the you, walk of shame. Walk of shame. It's the most effective. We do it on social media now. It's working. Yeah. Look at these yeah, racists. Yeah. Some guy calls someone an N-word and he owns a plumbing company. And two days later, his life is ruined. Yep. His business is gone. Everything's gone. Great. Fuck you. That's what you deserve. And you don't shouldn't go to jail for being an asshole. You don't deserve to fucking make any money if you're a dick. And then how do you go about living when you have no friends or business left? Then it makes you think it's about how you act. And, and, then, yeah. and then you can actually rehabilitate yourself. Yeah, fully and because you have to. You have you want to, to. And you want to. And go, wait a minute. This was me. This was my beliefs that got me where I am. I am a racist, so no one wants to hire me as a plumber anymore. Perfect. Because <laughs> I certainly wouldn't hire a plumber if I knew he was a racist. wanted to quickly ask you about the Instagram party that you DJed off the back of influencing on social media. So tell us about that and how that came about and the night itself, what happened, what went down. Jamie Oliver was the second celebrity signed to Instagram after uh, Sync Dog. And I was pretty early on the Instagram as well. And I loved it. Back then it was more like a WhatsApp group. It was that kind of, you know, community led. It wasn't as big as it is now, but it went nuts. So Jamie had just got me my first book deal and I went, I got a phone call from Penguin saying, hey, we got you a book deal. Um, I go, cool. And I'm thinking I had like, you know, months to write it. And they go, when do you need it? You know, and I'm thinking, you know, hopefully sometime in the winter. And they go, we need it in two weeks. I go, two weeks? Yeah, they wanted a book in two weeks. They go, I'm on holiday tomorrow to Portugal. I'd rather not write the book while on holiday. I'd like to spend it with my kids and my family. But I will. They go, as soon as you get back, you have two weeks to deliver it. I'm like, okay, on holiday? Uh, we were at a pool party. My laptop was playing music. Blew up in the sun. Lost a year and a half of recipes. Oh my god! It wasn't backed up. Nope. Some of it was, but not the majority of it. So I took it to Apple Genius Labs and all that. They couldn't help me. Luckily for me, Jamie Oliver hired the head of Genius Labs to be his head of IT. So the guy's like, "Well, I'll rebuild this, and I'll give you a new memory board. I'll give you everything, and we'll pay for it." Or you can just wait and try to see what Apple will do. I'll go, him and only you. <laughs> and, uh, but the, the day it was finished was the day that the um, party. So Jamie said, Christian, Kevin has just sold Instagram for a billion to Facebook. We are going to have a, a, a party at 15. Can you DJ it? I'm like, well, I'm supposed to be writing this book, and I'm already a month now past deadline. Um, but of course, I'll do it for you. You know, he, you know, Jamie got me the book deal. So I get there early with my sound system and my spandex. Two essential ingredients to any DJ barbecue set. <laughs> <laughs> I have stopped wearing ever since Trump got on board. Um, no 
spoiling it for everyone. Not you, him. Yeah, yeah. You know how to do it. And then um, at the top of the stairwell was David Loftus, who was my photographer. Uh, David's photographer um, just did one of the Middleton's books. Um, and he's like, DJ Barbecue, DJ Barbecue, come here, come here, come here. DJ Barbecue, Pippa Middleton, Pippa Middleton, DJ Barbecue. <laughs> so I was like, what do you say to Pippa Middleton that no one's ever said to her? So I spun around and I pointed at my zipper, my pips, can you unzip me, please? Clock's ticking. Where do I go next? Play my next song. Look to my left where the pizza oven is, and there's Boris Becker. And guess who he's talking to? Tiny Tampa. <laughs> I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. When is that going to happen? Instagram story party. Uh, Instagram, Instagram party, not Instagram story. Someday. Um, <laughs> you know, we ended up drinking all night with James Nesbitt. Amazing. Who he likes to cut it loose, right? Well, I think he and his missus just had the bus stop, and he took the entire staff of 15 to duck and waffle ramp a 2K bill and paid for it himself. What a cool guy. I said they had to get a car back home where I was supposed to start work on the book that hour, and I spent all day in bed with the worst hangover ever. <laughs> but, uh, it was like a party. <laughs> I've never been to one of those like super VIP parties, and I didn't believe I'd, I would ever be at one, but it, it was a good one, you know? <laughs> I got 
we're obviously in Lemmy's kind of you know spiritual home <laughs> right right now right by the rainbow and um, i guess for you he was not only a musical hero but also a friend through the tours you did and i wonder if you could just tell me a bit about what lemmy meant to to music and then also to you personally well i mean he was uh god yeah god, i'm at a loss for words you know lemmy was as cool as he was and as, as dangerous looking as he was, you know, that's what made him so cool to a lot of, to a lot of men, you know, a lot yeah, of boys. That outlaw vibe. The outlaw, yeah. the, the rebel. He embodied the mythological idea that we have in our head. Here he was live and in person, you know, yeah. like he stepped out of a, of a movie, of a comic book. Um, but beyond the look, it was the way he approached his music the way he approached just as a person, what I really liked about Lemmy more than the music was um, you can hang like he he doesn't put any cool um, decorations on anyone like we would do on other people, including himself. Like what I mean to say is like he just took everyone at face value and judged them on what he saw, not from what they looked like or or you how know, famous they were. Yeah, or, he yeah. just took you as you were. I found that he could hang with anybody. He could hang with, you know, like what people would probably consider really nerdy people as long as he could see through that. I, I thought that's what Lemmy meant for me, you know, and I, I, I take that with me wherever I go. I don't give a shit if you have the right fucking patch on your jean jacket. I really don't give a fuck. Um... And so that's what I took from Lemmy. And there's a great story that I heard years before I met Lemmy having to do with Getty Lee. Being from Toronto and Getty Lee and Rush, there's a lot of Rush stories that are abound in the city. And the one story I had heard was, I don't know if it's true or not, but I kind of believe it is. Um, Getty had invited Lemmy to his house, right? And so Getty's wife, looking at the picture of Lemmy and Motorhead and what that kind of stood for from an outsider uh, she was dead set against it and Lemmy came over and charmed the living crap out of her you know and that is how I see Lemmy like you know Lemmy could probably charm my mom you know like he, he could charm anyone's dad or or you know like he, he's just that kind of person a salt of the earth type character a man of the people yes I really feel that um, and then, of course, let's talk about the music, which was, you know, very inventive, very heavy. It, it, it um, carried uh, this, this weight for, for let's, let's be honest, boys who really felt like outcasts. And here was this fucking guy who was really our leader. <laughs> you know, he, so, yeah, it's, it's great. And then beyond that, to find out behind the scenes that, he was so cool to me. Phil Campbell and Mickey D were very cool to us. The the crew, Motorhead crew, which was also another thing about Lemmy is he he. Um, they run it like vaulted, a family. Don't yeah, they? they vaulted the crew up to the status of of the band members. So that was really cool too, and how they were treated. And yeah, yeah, Motorhead mean a lot more to to a, I think all of us than just the music, you know. So and that's another thing is like now that he's passed away. Yeah, we have lived in a we met, we were able to be in the presence of someone that I think people are going to mythologize and 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 
make bigger and deify larger than life as the years go by. The longer time goes on. I yeah. hadn't even thought about it like that because yeah. he was obviously a legend in his own lifetime. What you're saying is he will likely become an even bigger, bigger legend. Bigger and bigger in and years bigger, to come. I think. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think. You know, although... I'd agree with that. You know, the, you know, people people have a short-term memory and it's getting shorter as... As the days go by, but <laughs> it certainly is. Yeah, I, I would I would assume it would get bigger and bigger. You look so good when you get out of bed. You're always ready to go. I caught you looking like a million bucks when you walk out the door. Right there, you've got David Bowie on your screen. I'm just drawing from the room before we uh, evolve and go any further. You mm. were telling me the other day, along with Iggy Pop, who we'll talk about in a bit as well, he was probably, you know, your all-time hero, right? I, I find David Bowie to be probably, when it comes to the term artist, musical artist, and artist in general, I think he's probably the king of, in my book, for my personal taste, he's flawless. The work he did in the 70s alone is just all just you just sit in awe of it it's just so massive and so ge- genius and brilliant and how many times he changed his character and and every every single thing he did was just brilliant to me i mean there was some stuff in the 80s like most bands that were from that generation they would get a little more commercial because of the mtv generation but he still did quality work it wasn't as much i wasn't into it as much as i was the prior stuff but he's one in a billion there'll never be another David Bowie history of the world there will never be somebody like that of that caliber and I th- I honestly believe that the people like Lemmy and uh, Iggy Pop and all these and Lou Reed and all these people these full of life characters will never exist again because of, a, of a, an astounding amount of reasons but I just don't think that quality of people don't exist anymore do you think because our is so much more disposable in today's I, age. I think that what's happened is, um, from my personal view, is that people there were it, in back in the day there was a thing called artist development, and there was something where labels would invest into it into a, some into someone like David Bowie, let's say, where they believed in his vision, and he was able to make a a living creating doing his job which was creating art that has obviously been gone for many years now and hence it makes it more difficult for quality work to come out because people can't survive so i think it's uh and everything today is so easy with the internet it's a real real like there is no suffering as far as like anything you want is at your fingertips of course there's suffering when it comes to pain or whatever but when it comes to like music and you really want to strive like I used to drive hours to buy a record one record just to find that one record now you can just download it for a dollar on the internet and uh, but it's a different thing you know I just I think I think I like action I like going out of your way and suffering for something and it makes it much more enjoyable for me at the end 
Yeah, there's that element of um, discovery, mm-hmm. which makes it so much more exciting, doesn't it? I remember when I first discovered punk rock, you'd read all the liner notes and see who the bands thanked. And then you don't, you know, if, say, three bands all thank the same band, then you go out and check that yes, band right. out. That's exactly right. And that's how pre-internet you discovered new bands, wasn't it? That is. And you can't find out anything about them beyond what's in the Kerrang! interview that week. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to just get information about these people. And I guess when you said earlier about how big stars like David Bowie and Lemmy probably won't ever exist again... I think it's hard for them to exist when you can find out anything about anyone at any time, right? Well, I th- I, yeah, but I also think that that's going to be across the board, especially when it comes to even actors. Look at the quality of actors that are around today who are the stars versus 10 years ago or 20 years ago. The quality of work is so... not even a tenth of what it was back then because people really fucking worked hard. You know, you're talking about having to put a lot of effort into something to for your craft versus putting it together, let's say, on Pro Tools, mm-hmm. where you don't even have to play a full song. And you don't even have to have, know how to play an instrument, basically. You could just... Uh, I don't know. I guess it's fun for kids or people or whatever. That's cool. It's just... I, I haven't found anything that's really inspired me that way. You had some times with David Bowie, right? Yeah, I've got. I had the opportunity to meet him several times and have dinner with him and stuff. Yeah. What do you learn from someone like that when you're up close and in their company? How you love this person, their music growing up, and once for me, most of the people that I've met that I've really grew up admiring, it was no wonder once I met these people. It was as if you knew them forever, and it was as if you had a connection to them because everything they were communicating about that you connected with, there was a reason for that is because you connected with that individual who created that art. And I think that nine times out of 10, these people are the most beautiful people you've ever met. And it's like, and sometimes you end up being friends with these people and they take you under their wing or I've had a lot of that happen in my life where these people that I never even dreamt about meeting let alone uh, talking to, would actually call me or want to do something with me or, you know, be involved with... It's just... It's... uh, For that... In that terms of life, I've definitely had one of the richest lives for my life beyond my dreams, you know, getting to work with people that I've truly, truly think are the, the highest, most elite individuals that ever created the art. you wrote the lyrics and a lot of the themes in that album are quite dark and difficult and painful did you have a tumultuous upbringing as well were you writing about a lot of stuff that was close to home for you absolutely yeah i was definitely a frustrated de- depressed angry uh person um and i got a lot of that out through the music 
Um, and I think that also, you know, songs like This Time, which were directly about Joey's up, upbringing and his, and his relationship with his family, um, just being so close with, with one another, I was able to take his feelings and put them into lyrics. Um, and I think that's why that record ha- did connect with so many people because these are such common problems and common themes that everyone goes through um, at that age. Yeah. In that time. And that's why it's had the longevity um, because it was written in a way that even if you put it on now, you could relate to the message. And um, and that's something that we tried to tap into again in the later records um, when we realized that these albums were helping people yeah. um, in a cathartic way. And um, every record that we've done after that captured that bit of time of who we were at that time. And we never tried to write River on Tread Part 2. Um, well, Ugly was kind of quite distinctly different, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was almost a reaction to River on Tread. Yeah. It was a reaction to touring for two years. It was a reaction to living with one another. It was just a whole different experience. And um, in a way, the band at that time was more isolated uh, with each individual, we weren't very, um, very much on the same page. You weren't? No. Um, is that because I, of what was going on with the success of the group was dividing you and you were dealing with the, the fame, if you want to call it that differently or? I don't know if it was fame, but it was always like you had a lot of pressure on you at that point to, um, top the last one. Uh-huh. Um, that's the problem with such a critically acclaimed and commercially successful debut, I guess, isn't it? Is how do we follow this? There's pressure on you from yourselves as much as from outside. Well, you know what it is? It's like from 1990 to 1992 when we recorded it, you had this dream that you were after that probably was never going to happen, but we were handed a record deal. We were handed tours to play with some of our heroes, you know. Um, like who? Who did you get to go out with that was like a dream come true? Well, we played with Ozzy, you know. We played with Danzig. Um, we played all over the world in front of massive crowds. I mean, at when we first started, we were playing literally on two ping pong tables <laughs> with a, a string light bulb in a, in a place that was called... <laughs> twin lights and there wasn't even one light in the whole place (laughs) i mean we were playing these little hardcore shows in front of our friends and we and other bands yeah yeah and their girlfriends yeah yeah. (laughs) you know and um and they were serving pizza upstairs or you know the one one place that comes to mind is we played a pancake house in in pennsylvania we played the basement of the pancake house and uh and mina the power kept going out and Mina kept saying, uh, come on, what's up? What's going on with this place? And we finally got the power back on. She was annoyed and she was like, I want to see you motherfuckers tear this roof down. 
And they literally did. They started punching the ceiling, the sheetrock ceiling, and the whole ceiling fell down in this pancake house. And the owners came down. This elderly couple comes down. They're like, what did you do to our place? <laughs> Until this day, we have people asking us to sign pieces of the ceiling. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's where we come from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we don't forget that. And everything that we get to do play with our heroes play with we play with david bowie you know we played with slipknot we've played with black sabbath um metallica um we're still in awe of the experience even 25 years later because we know that we played the pancake house There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Someone said on the way down here, I'm not going to name drop him, but he was like, you uh, don't get two suicides and a singer being kidnapped by a cult in Coldplay. You seriously do not. <clears throat> I mean, from just from just the story, I'm not going to say that. Um, <laughs> from just the story point of view, I mean, where do you start as a storyteller with approaching those subjects? Were they open to just talk about it from the get go? Well, I mean, you know, to be fair, there's that is th- those are the story beats. I mean, you can't get away from it. That's those are the events that have shaped the narrative of ex japan you know um and to tell it you have to lean into that um why wouldn't you you know what i mean and yoshiki knows it very well i mean it's it's as deep as pain but it's also narratively his greatest strength because he can build 
off of that adversary. He can build off of that um, uh, adversity, and you know, with his creativity, and use that as a real transformative uh, pivot. You know what I mean? Like his whole artistic project is kind of about death and rebirth, over and over and over again, and that transfers to the fans. It's like this is is intense transference of that cycle that gives them all power. Um, I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen anything like it. The depths of the tragedy, the heights of the creativity, and then that passion that, that ignites between band and fan base. I mean, I've, I got tweets from somebody who saw the film, who went into the film having suicidal feelings and came out with a hope to live you know what I mean? Like the film X Japan Yoshiki saved someone's life. You know, that's just one example. And it happens over and over and over again. So it's pretty intense. Um, and yeah, I mean, where do you start? It's all there. I mean, you just have to start digging and asking questions about it. Um, and the emotion just kind of, have you seen the film? I mean, he's the waterworks just kind of come. This stuff's very much on the surface with him. So that stuff about the cult, I mean, the suicidal elements to the story are obviously, you know, heartbreaking. Um, but for me, what was almost the most like intriguing, I don't know whether that's the right word, but it's certain. I mean, you don't come across kidnappings by cults day to day in Western rock and roll bands, do you? You can't imagine like, I mean, maybe someone like mm. David Bowie would attract mm. that level and prince and these people like that but it's not really something that is you know commonplace mm -hmm. in western rock and roll it's just not i mean well um because you don't explore <clears throat> it in that much detail in we the film we don't we don't and it was partly you know it wasn't because we didn't want to um toshi did tell us quite a bit about it um it just ends up becoming this thing where if you open the door a little bit wider you're, you're literally asking for a whole other movie about that i mean there's so much detail um we wanted to try to channel everything kind of through uh yoshigi's perspective um and see how it affected him and the band and how their journeys parallel and then you, toshi kind of goes away from him so to dig too much into toshi's narrative would have kind of made the film a bit lopsided although it's so intriguing everyone wants to know more everybody wants to know more about the cult i mean he wrote a whole book about it so it's not like it's a mystery toshi has a book published in japan called like my 12 years in hell or something like that <laughs> exactly what it says yeah, on the tin is, exactly. is that available in english do you know uh -uh, no. no i mean i i have i have a little cheeky translation of it tucked right. away on my laptop somewhere um but uh, yeah. the stuff that got me was the physical torture. Yes, yes, yes. Just I mean, casually references. And I, I'm I, like, what? You wonder is if it's like a little mini Scientology or something. I don't know what. Who I knows did, what goes on? I in did the almost big, say so. Scientology yeah. is a joke in the room, but I didn't know if any of them perhaps were Scientologists. I, so I didn't want don't to. think so. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, it's it's tragic. I mean, it, it was it's your garden your garden variety brainwash cult. I mean, it starts as you know self help seminar. And it sounds like this, like stuff like this in LA. I mean, like again, Scientology, 
est, which then became like the forum. I mean, if you hear things like this where people will be brought in your... Self- well, I guess it's like what happens with actors like Tom Cruise and Will Smith with Hollywood. Well, yeah. On I mean, just a more extreme level. Super extreme, yeah. I mean, they see an opportunity, um, but their methods uh, were, were, were those of, you know... He was actually... And the thing is, it seemed like he was already in a vulnerable spot. His family was having problems. Uh, you know, fame screws people up in all sorts of different ways. Yoshiki uh, did kind of touch on that, and he said they were trying to make that record of the English language songs to yeah. go big in the U.S. and the U.K. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Toshi's confidence was constantly being eroded um, by the fact that he couldn't step up to like the likes of, you know, uh, Vince Neil or Axl Rose, you know, or, Axl like Rose or all the great metal bands that they were probably seeing. Gods of their day as on well. On the Sunset Strip while they were in L.A. hanging out. So he already feels like, you know, incapable of stepping up to that level. And, um, yeah, lo and behold, this woman appears, kind of seduces him. Um, they were in a play. Uh, it's very funny. He did a rock opera. He did a Japanese rock opera version of Hamlet. She was in of the course. she was in the play. Uh, they marry, and she coaxes him into these self help seminars run by this. Uh, it's called Home of the Heart. Was the name of the cult. Um, and the guy that was the leader of the cult, no lie, his name was Masaya, M A S A Y A, right? Hmm. Not too suspect, right? Um, and uh, evil emperor. <laughs> yeah, they were just you know it was seminars, and wow. before you know it, the the tactics are, you know, he's being locked in a room, given a knife. They said it was like he was like put in a room with a mattress and a knife told that that mattress is your family and you have to murder them to remove their influence from your life. Close the door, lock it, we'll see you when you're done. And like, who knows, days could go by. You know what I mean? It was, it was, it was really bad. And yeah, stories of physical abuse, beatings. Did you talk to him directly much? Or yeah, was it just I did. We have, a, we have a book? really long interview with Toshi. I mean, I read, I read the whole book and... Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, they brainwashed him, stole all his money. It was physical, it was mental. But I, it's not unique to him. I think this is just when you look across the history of cults and these kinds of, these kinds of organizations, this is what they do. Um, and you have a wealthy rock star, you know, great opportunity to siphon him dry. The cult itself, did you ever sort of get to the bottom of what they were about, what they wanted? As I was not in the cult, so I don't know 100%, <laughs> but as far as I heard from Toshi, it's not really, really cult. It's that they're using that kind of like um, format, and then, well, even I think it's worse, it's more like a business. More like, uh, they're, you know, they recruited Toshi to make money. So he, you know, he, uh, after, um, well, he, uh, actually, that's another reason Toshi came back. So cult leader eventually told Toshi to join, uh, 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 I mean, create X Japan again so he can contribute so more money. So he can make a little bit. Yeah. When Toshi came back, like after almost eight, nine years, um, uh, you know, X Japan's broke up, I kind of knew something not right. 
But I thought that was also, I saw the hope if I, if we got, if we, you know, get reunited, I may be able to bring him back from that world. So it may take time, but so I was like, let's, let's get reunited, you know, then. So the adventure, he came back. Yeah, he realized. Yeah. It's a wild chapter in your career, isn't it? Completely. A really wild chapter. Yeah. Were you totally estranged during that whole period, that break, as friends? Was there any communication or was he fully in it? And Pretty much zero. Right. All, only thing I heard was, it was on Japanese TV, news TV. The rock star was brainwashed. He, Toshi was on TV. He was saying, I was, I was not brainwashed. I was not brainwashed. You guys are weird. It's, it's, there's some kind of like a argument between, kind of fight between his his uh, group and then media. It's, then I was, I, you know, because I, also I was living in Los Angeles. I didn't see that much Japanese TV, but I went back to Japan sometime once in a while. Then I saw the news. I was like, whoa, what's, what's going on? But I didn't want to actually touch the subject. I was pretty much done with that, that kind of like Japan wax lives so because you know the guitar player Hide uh, passed away you know five months five months after our breakup acceptance uh, broke up so I didn't want to touch that subject so almost yes almost 10 years I was had zero idea about what's going on Toshi what do you remember from the day was it Los Angeles you said when you were reacquainted what do you remember from that day when you, you I guess you know reconnected with him for the first time in almost a decade it's really strange um there's a guitar player called Toshi. It's just, it's just the same name, Japanese guy. He was playing with the uh, David Lee Roth band, like Van Halen's vocalist, uh-huh. his yeah, band. Yeah. So he was actually uh, you know, doing some session with me once in a while in Los Angeles. Then somebody you know, said, uh, Toshi's on the phone. It's called my studio, record, recording studio. Okay, I thought that, that Toshi was that Toshi. Then when I picked up the phone, I was like, whoa. Except I'm Toshi. <laughs> I, like, I was like, what's going on? I didn't expect to hear from you today, yeah. Not at all. And what did he say? I'm coming out and I want to see you. And well, he said, how, how are you? You know, I said, like, I guess I'm okay. And how are you? You know, so he said, yeah. Then she said, can I come to Los Angeles to see? Yeah. I, th- I knew something was going on. Yeah. Then when I saw his face, he was... Still not the person I knew. So do you already find? Is he now? I think so, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Japan. Ex-Japan. So I had Yoshiki on this show, and yep. I recently watched the amazing documentary about them. Have you seen that? I haven't. Casey it's has it, but I haven't wild. borrowed it yet. But I hear it's great. What's? I mean, how do you even go about trying to capture the larger-than-life insanity of a band like that? <sighs> because, I mean, their story, I presume you know the sort of story of the band. Yeah. And yeah. I first did a music video for Hide, 
um, for a band called Zilch. Right. And it was freaking wicked. <laughs> it was right after Manson, and it, it was a just a twisted fucking video, man. He was a riot, man. He was a funny guy. So then uh, years later, they brought me in to do this video for a song called Jade. And it was just this huge, huge shoot. It was like back to like the old budgets and... I don't know what happened to it. It's like we were cutting it, and then it got like shelved, and it was a very expensive-looking video, and I can't imagine them not releasing it. But Yoshiki wanted to play a werewolf and a vampire, and it's like, it's like, pick one or the other. Don't be a werewolf and a vampire. And yeah, it, that sounds it like was, him though. Yeah, wants to do it, and be everything. It didn't translate too well, so uh, I. I would have just voted to nix anything to do with the werewolf or the vampire and just focus on rocking because the performance was so good. It was at this old Baroque theater downtown that they opened up for us and it's just beautiful golden balconies and I can show you some pictures later. I'd love to. And they just did Coachella, didn't they? They did. Which is nuts. And Manson sang with them. Yeah, I saw. Because <laughs> they go way back, I presume. They're sort of in that yep. same world of... Yeah, that was all like, yeah. So, Hede and Manson, and we'd, we'd get kind of nutty together back in the day. But uh, Hede was a... Would you write a book, Dean? Huh? Would you write a book? I would. Is it on the cards? Is it... Yeah, it takes a lot motion? of... Uh, that takes a lot of... Uh, mm, focusing. I get so distracted, brother. <laughs> it's it's not the easiest thing to keep me focused. No, no, no. I mean, I got the stories. It's all right there. And you remember yeah. all of them? Is it all sort of? I don't firmly... remember them all, but I have the people that can come and remind me of them all. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's been a crazy ride, man. It's been a fucking crazy ride, man. What would you call it? Have you got a working title in mind? No. The man behind the lens. Just. <laughs> strap strap in and turn it up to 20 man i like that do you find that rock and roll photography is kind of still an art form yeah yeah you feel I'm, like it's i'm able to satisfy the lit labels although i like working with the littler labels these days but uh i now that everything's digital my costs are down i don't film and processing it used to be that was a big line number that was like almost like eighteen hundred dollars just for film and processing and uh now that it's digital i can really uh help these cool bands and these cool you know there's a lot of super heavy badass uh labels here i'm trying to think of which ones i'd be trying to talk to you about do you feel like the danger and the the partying side and the insanity is still in the mix though definitely not so much Definitely not so much. So you got the tail end? Yeah. And the middle end. Yeah.
he was so talented in 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 a way that I don't feel like. Uh, I mean, there are very few people that have the the command of you know all, all the forces like he did. You know, I mean, there there are you know there are amazing artists that are just so explosive on stage and 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 uh you know they they sort of like do one thing or a couple things really really well chris was an amazing guitarist he was an amazing singer he had he was obviously you know born to be a front man just with 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 the look <laughs> so he had all those things but the thing that impressed me more about chris than any of those elements was actually he was super funny but he was a poet and his lyrics um like I feel like they can stand sh- uh, shoulder to shoulder with any poet, um, especially in this age, but also even eons going back. And so, as a lyricist, and 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 what that what that um, was evocative was just an an, an intellect that was so dialed into um, the the poetic nature of, of different experiences. So. Um, it's funny, like I don't like he, he's sort of like in, if you look at the rock guys, like he's the Renaissance dude, you know. He's he's the guy that 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 had all of those qualities, and I never ever um, sensed that sort of um, need for a, a way out like that, you know. Um, so yeah, it was shocking to me too. I, it's it's still shocking. Like I, it would be like, um, I, I, bad luck to actually name anybody who's who 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 is still alive. But I, it would just be like you know, pick your, pick your the most solid rock star, who you would never expect that from, and and that's what happens, and it's just like you can't process it. So <clears throat> it's weird. It's um, yeah, it uh. And and I think what what's also weird is because there has been this this string of of suicides, um, you know there was a certain point after Chester especially actually yeah Chester and Scott that it felt like man this is becoming uh, the normal way to die, you know it's not natural death, it's not um, you know it's not by accident or anything like that it's like opting out and and. Um, and that, and it's the thing that hurts so much about it when people go th- do that is, is just, it it hurts to think that somebody was in that much pain that that, that death is the only answer. And um, what do you do with that? You know. There's been we'll we'll lighten up the subject in a minute, but there's been there's been an awful lot of death, particularly with people you work with. Does that? leave a mark on you do you find it hard sometimes to to deal with that because you know you've got Kurt you've obviously got Scott you've got Chris even people who you work with say once like a prince and mm-hmm. I definitely want to talk to you about that video mm-hmm. and working with him but and obviously DJ AM and I mean do these things leave a mark on your soul yeah it's it, um, when you when you look at uh Let's say the artists that I'm attracted to are they have a dark side, right? And and uh, and obviously my work has a dark side too. But I, I don't I don't obsess on it, and and I feel like those artists don't obsess on it. But I think that the 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 pernicious nature of 
of that darkness, um, you know, I guess it's logical that that's going to overtake everything else. You'd hope that it doesn't, but I think that, that um, you know, <clears throat> nature can be grotesque and, and, uh, and can smother and choke and, and, uh, and just, you know, beat up, um, you know, the, the, um, people and, uh, that in a way that, um, it's just so relentless. And I think that when you add substance abuse into it, which seems to get people's guards down, yeah. um, even if the, and always seems to be involved, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, and it's weird because like I have, like I I'm not, I don't have any of those impulses, you know, and and uh, it's it's probably just I'm lucky that my body chemistry does not like opiates. Like it has a horrible reaction to it, and it just ha- it, it it just turns out to be the golden elixir for some people who are super talented. And and uh, and it gets the better of them. When did you start to lose interest in the band and feel like you were done with writing music in that group? Um, well, it was about in the mid-80s. We were... Um, John was throwing his weight around a bit more, which I was a bit uh, unhappy with because he, he wasn't really portraying the band in the, in the correct way, I didn't think. Um, and you, he was unstoppable. Um, physically, so um, so that I found that a bit um, depressing and daunting, and um, and we were meet and then everybody got into relationships. Um, uh, three of the band got married. I didn't, um, uh, and so they were they had to, they started having families and, and creating these groups outside of the band. So we were ended up. We were just meeting to to do work, and there was no. And we all go off to do our lives afterwards, and you, you had no real contact with it, and um, and it felt like we were becoming uh, we were being split split up, but not by anything that you could do anything about. Yeah, just life. life. Yeah, that's what happens. And uh, suddenly it was it had lost its thrill, you know. Yeah, like that, and. Um, and and uh, as time went on, I I got less and less uh, excited by the uh, the gigs we were doing, and um, and then the last album we made, which was called Ten, which was made specifically for the Amer- to break into the American market with some new uh, new management setup, and we couldn't even get it anyone interested in releasing it in America, and I thought, well, I can't believe it. There are some great songs on this, and. Um, Nobody's nobody's going to release it, and I thought, well, I think that's about it now. I looked at my watch and thought, well, I'm off. 
<laughs> but it's very funny because the it's very odd how that was received by the rest of the band because they took it as a real disloyalty rather than, okay, well, fair enough. Everything's got a beginning and an end. And, uh, and ever since, they've never really forgiven me for it. And um, although they've got a new uh, reincarnation now, um, it's not really anything to do with the one that created all these great songs. And, um, and it's, it's a shame that I, I, don't, I don't get any positive or encouraging feedback from that, that part of uh, my, my past at all, which is, I find a bit sad. Um, you mean from the guys or from the yeah, fan base or a bit, and a bit from the fan base as well they they it's funny it's um uh it's it's just really odd <laughs> and um encouragement will be good i've had no encouragement whatsoever it's it's uh, from that side which is surprising if you think that people would wish people well you know and um do you feel like that's because the narrative's been twisted and people think you just walked out on it and yeah, I think almost betrayed it? Yeah, the truth hasn't been told, probably. That's it. I mean, people always... The truth looks different from wherever you're standing, right? Of course, yeah. Um, but there are limits. <laughs> um, so, um, but that's okay, you know. I think that um, uh, um, that sort of attitude uh, belay, belies a certain insecurity think if you're behaving like that then it, it shows insecurity and uh, for some reason they feel insecure um, and I don't know why they can't um, I wish them all the best um, you know I wish they could wish me all the best <laughs> like sun lays me down with my mind she runs throughout the night no need to fight never a frown with golden brown it's a weird world even in my lifetime i'm 32 and even in my lifetime i've noticed a drastic change in as you say like community-based activity yes. where, where i think it definitely still thrives is the north of england and i was up in grimsby recently to do yeah. a podcast up there and I did a, a chat with the lad from This Is England that filmed the, the, yeah, yeah, the little yeah, ginger yeah. lad. He's the main character. And everywhere we went, I spent the whole day with him. Everywhere he went, everybody knew him, not because he's an actor and he's in a f- famous film, but because he's Tomo from down the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we went to a fish and chip shop for lunch and we went to a pub for a pint and it felt like the community was so strong. And I feel like that when I go on tours to places like, say, even the bigger cities like Manchester or Newcastle. There's still, I think, we're, more we're, of that. We're lucky enough to... Um to move about. Yeah. And uh, by far, the place we've toured by far the most is the UK. And I still like it. And if I don't do it, I, I kind of miss it because I like to see... Uh, I don't want to really talk about Brexit, but I'm just saying, when that was all happening, we were on tour with Dead Men Walking, which is the thing we do with Jake Burns, yeah, um, uh, Kirk Brandon, me and Ruffy. And... Whatever our individual politics are, I would say we're all leaning to definitely towards the left, you know. And um, you know, songwriters. And you, when you're in Middlesbrough, looking out at an audience sitting there, 
old punks that looking at you and you're sitting there with three acoustic guitars and a sort of like a tambourine you think they're going to kill you but actually they come up in tears and these are some of the toughest people i've ever met you know like looking they love it because you take that song down and but you realize that there's no money there's there's always been a north and south divide and yeah the money's all it, it's, it's tough all down south, here now it? but it's all in the south so yeah. i do like to travel and i do like to talk to those people and i do again it all sounds very um monochrome that you're sitting there oh yeah they got no money we've got to it's not like that because i'm just saying we don't even talk about that we talk about the music but it's good to see what's going on in those communities and sometimes you might be in a pub like that and you think Right, you know, you might. I've been in a pub in Middlesbrough, and you know, does anyone want a drink and get everyone a drink? And then they don't take cards. It's quite. There's very few down here that don't do that, but you know, because they just they, they're not on that agenda. They're not on this um, this whole thing that we're being sold. You know, that we get sold from the south. You know, this that everything's better. We don't need cash. It's all plastic. Everything we can get everything on credit. You know, it's been going on for years, and you know. It, well, I'm totally up for um, modernisation. I'm totally up for technology. I'm t- but let's take everyone with us. You know what I mean? Not well, just the people that can afford it. That's, my friend raised a really interesting point to me the other day, which is that how many people now just don't carry cash? And so the homeless guy on the street who's asking people for change. Well, someone said you're paying with a, with a no, it's PDQ it. machine. Yeah, they pull yeah. It out. Apparently, I mean, I don't know whether I'm not seeing that yet. But, but that I mean, that will that will happen soon, won't it? It'll probably happen in my lifetime where cash is gone, and then you're like, well, how do we help out these people that we can't give our change to if we don't have any? I have to go back to my mattress <laughs> underneath my <laughs> yeah, mattress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then you know what they do now? We, you know what they do? Obviously, like phase out the old coins, phase out the old tenors. So yeah. uh, the people that have got all the black market money, you know, have to go and get to it somewhere. Uh, except for the royal family, of course. Yeah, they're on a whole different planet. <laughs> yeah, a whole different planet. But let's not go there. We have to talk before we move on to all the other stuff you've done about the phone character. Yeah. Because obviously in the pre-smartphone age, now people on their phones just sort of look down and they're constantly like engaged with the phone, but they're yeah. never actually on it. Yeah, yeah. But that weird, was that time when mobile phones began to just be, for the first time, I think, popularly used everywhere. And yeah. you would always get that obnoxious character, wouldn't you? Whether it was in the cinema or the restaurant yeah, yeah. or wherever trying to let everyone know that their business is so important it's exactly that weirdly i've just been on the world at one today because because the new <clears throat> iphones have come out today and they're, they're they're sort of getting near to the original size of my phone <laughs> and i was talking about how illogical that character was because that was a very separate character to the rest of trigger happy yeah it, it was, worked wasn't it? very successfully for me because most people that hadn't seen trigger happy would know the big mobile guy but it kind of was everything I hated. It was was it a, a blessing bit, and a curse that yeah, one? kind of yeah. because it was a bit shouty yeah, and it's a bit obvious and it's a bit different. I and mean, it the did whole, become the most popular and widely known character it's, it's from insane. the show, didn't I it? I mean, in in a guerrilla marketing way, it was genius because the Nokia tune that was used diddle used diddle to be called diddle Grand Vals. Then it became the Nokia tune. So if you didn't change your phone when you bought it, that would go off. And every time that phone went off, that was like a mental stimulus of trigger happy. Yeah, yeah, great. yeah. But the phone. The idea of it originally was I was walking down a street with Sam 
and there was there was a a big mo- there was a mobile phone shop and there was a big display outside and they had this phone outside and it was fucking heavy so we just nicked it we just thought it was funny <laughs> nicked it went on the bus we were like returning to it and i got to oxford street which is where our office was this was like two years before trigger happy and we're walking down oxford street and there was an australian dj called john o'coleman and he was being interviewed on oxford street so i sort of always trying to make sam laugh i was like we weren't filming it i was just like standing in, in behind the shot and I'm pretending to talk going yeah no no I'm behind John O'Coleman no moron and then we ran off laughing and that made us laugh and then we forgot about it and we just literally put it in the office and it sat in the office for a bit and then when Trigger Happy started I remembered this character and I said oh that'd be quite good and actually it was not about phones although that was the time when people so they'd gone from big brick phones the 80s and the uppies and then they were getting smaller and smaller to the and smaller, little flips weren't to they? the flips yeah and then, and then they were now, of course, they're getting bigger and bigger. It was just before screens. But there were always those people on the train who were like, let you know and turn everything into their office and people yeah. in the cinema and all that sort of stuff. And it was half letting you know how important they were, half just like, just shut the fuck up. It was yeah. really irritating. And obnoxious. And obnoxious. Yeah. So I kind of, that was the character. But really the phone was more about a way to interrupt things that annoyed me, like classical music, yeah. theatre, yeah, yeah. all those sort of places where... You it's very stuffy. Yeah, it yeah. allowed you just to say what you thought. It was like a sort of, if I'm going to be really poncy, like an oracle. Mm-hmm. So it was like someone sort of talking to the audience going, this is rubbish. Yeah, yeah. So it was a bit like that, really. But then in hindsight, people go, oh, my God, it was an amazing, you know, uh, it was an amazing take on the mobile phone generation. And I was like, yeah, I guess it was. Yeah. But comedy is a lot like that. I had probably the weakest joke I ever did in Trigger Happy was me dressed as an old man pushing a pram and I let the pram go down some steps. And honestly, I'd just run out of ideas and I had to fill a, a gap. And then, then people said, oh, that's a bit like uh, the untouchables, like that. And then the Guardian called it a, um, a marvellous reworking of Eisenstein's Potemkin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the I was famous like, montage scene I'll on the steps. have that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so, a nod to my yeah, cinematic yeah. hero, well, of course. I'm a yeah. huge Eisenstein fan. Yeah. <laughs> so no, that was all good. But... um. So the, no, the, the best thing about that joke as well, Dom, is the sign-off line at the end, the chow. The chow is what, it's like the cherry on top of the cake, that well, is. Well, chow is just, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> so that's what that type of person who has that kind of a conversation would probably say, isn't it, at the end? So of the I suppose what was, yeah, chow, yeah, what yeah. was nice about the joke, you know, and again, I hate analysing a joke, but if I really think about it, even though I don't like it, because it's what people expect that I still do all the time, it's just that. But there was the fact that you've got a scene, and if you know what's going to happen, there's the anticipation, because you just think, all right, I know he's going to interrupt this, when's it going to happen? Then there is that moment of interruption, which is amazing when everyone just stops. It's that bank robbery moment where everyone just stops. Then there's me actually commenting on what's going on, which you shouldn't do. So it's like, no, I'm at a theatre. No, it's just rubbish. Carry on. Which, again, is another joke. Or I'm 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 at a restaurant. No, the food's awful. Like one of those Nouvelle places. And then finishing with a wanky chow yeah. like that. And then there was always just that walk off or <laughs> just walk off and just think, please, no one hit me. No one arrest me. But it was Sam and I used to call it a bank robbery thing. There is this theory that if you're in a bank rob, if you rob a bank, you have to take control of a room. So if you go in shouting and you fire into the ceiling, everyone stops and everyone gets very tunnel vision as well. They just stare at you. So Sam could be quite close. They never looked. You oh, just of course. Yeah, because away. it's like a, what's the term in magicians? Linguistic it is sleight like of hand, isn't it? It is it's sleight like of a, hand, exactly. Physical... And people just don't, they get absolutely, you know, focused on you. It's like a fight or flight thing. So, yeah, there's a lot of psychology in that sort of thing that was quite interesting. I mean, it was almost creepy, but there were moments where we'd set something quite big up in a street and Sam and I would look at each other and just think, this is amazing. Like, this is a normal street here. And we know 
it was almost like being sort of shit god. You look, yeah. like, we're about to change this street and do something. Is that a rush? Is, oh, it's such a as rush. As a performer yeah. for you? Yeah, it was such a rush. And unfortunately, one of the big problems of Trigger Happy was the rush because people don't realize that, you know, people go, oh, did you write Trigger Happy or did you have writers? There's no writing at all. It was all made up on the spot. It has to be because how could I know what someone else is going to say? And really, it was all about making Sam laugh. So often the camera shakes because it's Sam laughing. And uh, <laughs> Did you ever break character and burst out Almost laughing? never. And it's actually, never on screen, but I no, wonder if you I, ever I had moments. I don't think I ever did. I did once, and then I pretended to cry. It was the only way I was <laughs> right, like, to get it. out of it. Yeah. And the reason I didn't is because when you're, you come up to someone as the character, you're absolutely fine. You know, you're talking like this. But if someone suddenly goes, are you dumb jolly? Yeah, then the, suddenly the ruse is up. The, yeah. the terrible emptiness of your life faces you. And, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. and recently I did one where... Uh, Can you oh still God. do it now anywhere no, in public? I did a new trigger. Surely you just get recognised everywhere now, I did a new trigger. Right? A lot of people did recognise me. But, you know, there were people that didn't and you could... You know, we did quite a lot of prosthetics, but there was one case where there's a bloke sitting on a bench and I've got a guy in my ear and I go, right, I'm going to the bloke on the bench and I sit down next to him and I open a can of beer and I'm just about to go into... I can't remember what the what the joke was, the bloke looks at me and goes, you Dom Jolly? And I go, yeah, yeah, I am. He goes, what are you up to nowadays? I go, just drink beer on benches now. <laughs> and he just stared at me like that. And you can see him thinking, oh, this is awkward. And then he got up and left me. And he tried to give me some money. <laughs> Dom and Jolly's took, fallen on hard times. And I took the money. I, Did you? I, Love didn't, it. I just didn't want to admit that I was yeah, yeah. doing a joke, but it had fucked up. So I just took five and said, thank you very much, mate. <laughs> so I loved that. Originally, Gadget was as a character wasn't meant to kind of join combos, sort of little sort of separate gang. Um, but on the day of that, like Shane was saying, like where you know you you think where your characters would go listening to this, not where you'd go. And obviously, I'm a massive lefty, so I'd not go there. But Gadget is very easily led. You know, get, you know, in the scene, I think like you know mentioned like Woody kept always putting me down and that and stuff. So. I'd be, no, Gadget, Gadget joined this bigger, harder bloke because that's Gadget is is a soft, you know, big lad, but you know, soft. Um, he, he'll go with the, the biggest, hardest bloke to to, yeah. to protect him. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, and 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 help him out. So yeah, if 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 you, if this guy's saying, oh, these these people are coming over here doing this, and that Gadget buy that shit all day. I think Andy wouldn't. Gadget what's, would. What's mad about that scene <clears throat> is that Milky almost almost yeah. joins up. Isn't yeah. that mad? Yeah. Sorry. Well, again, that was that was that was down to uh, to, to you know obviously Andrew Shim like fucking performance in that scene's amazing. Um, again, Shimmy said to Shane like Milky would buy into this a bit because he's not. If you listen to that scene, like he, Steve, Steve, uh, Combo's not saying uh, anything at kind of Milky's race. You know, he's, he's, he's explicitly, you know, talking about Argent, the Argentinians and stuff in, in the Falklands. And then and then stuff about, you know, the Asian community, which at the time were, you know, the newbies. You know, there's, there's that saying, like, you know, whoever's 
last in is is always the ones that are gonna gonna get blamed yes. for everything. In relation, I think I've heard that a lot to New York in particular. Yes, it's like first it was the Italians, then yeah. it's the Irish, or yeah. the other way around. Yeah, yeah, and now it's you know obviously with American general, it's it's Mexicans. Yeah. You know that's and 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 Muslims. Yeah, um, and that's that's again going back to what we were saying before. That's always the way it goes. You know, it's it it's the 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 minorities in it you know that well they're here and they they must be doing something bad because we've not seen them before and it's is you know it's a fear of that so yeah going back to that, i think i think shimmy's character milke was like yeah you know what i mean like my dad works hard and you know we work hard you know they've been here for a couple of generations now like when he says to him he, he jamaican or british he's like yeah i'm british you know um because he is you know uh, so yeah, it was it was it was a tough scene really to kind of think right where where would I we had to think as our characters because it's you know if we didn't you know most or all of us are, are genuinely you know nice people yeah. it would have been a very different film especially was, Stevens like the nicest of the nice yeah right? yeah exactly yes <laughs> Stevens so so nice man we we were around it as the other week and yeah he's just a he's just a lovely bloke he's just so far removed from from combo it's it's what's incredible about him though is he can access that dark. Yeah, negative physical energy. Yeah, so convincingly. Yeah, he's yeah, terrifying, isn't he? Oh yeah, he is. Yeah, for, <laughs> when for he's a in bloke. when he's in character. Yeah, 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 he is, mate. Yeah, and and you know, some sometimes you you get that mixed up as well because in '86 I had to have an affair with Stephen's actual real life wife, the character Hannah, Trudy, right? Trudy, is it Trudy? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. Hannah, Hannah Graham, Crystal. Hannah yeah, yeah, all that shit, <laughs> and um. That was terrifying was for me, yeah, because I was like, it's Combo's wife, this. You know, you have to get moved back and go, oh, you obviously, like, it's it's Stevens, you know, and... and, and does she act in a lot of other stuff? Yeah, yeah she's, she does. Done, she's done a few bits. What She did... Because um, she's a, she's so funny. She is one of the funniest, so funny. funniest people I know. Like, when <laughs> when we, we uh, like I was saying earlier, before we film any of this in England, we normally have, like, a week of... Um, they say rehearsals, it's not, it's more just... Like bonding. Bonding, yeah. and just... What Shane does is he gets us there for that week and he just puts scenarios and ideas and things in our head that, unknowingly to us, will help us as, as actors access our characters easier. What so, a great way to work. Oh, mate, it's as amazing. As an actor, that must be the most fun. It is amazing. Because Rather than just, here's the script, stick to that, that is gospel. Exactly. So when we did the film, we... Um, we, we we'd never met, you know. I didn't know any of the cast. Few of the Nottingham lot and Derby lot knew each other because they they'd gone to a workshop together. So who Me, would that have been? The Nottingham uh, and Derby so lot. Chanel Creswell. Uh, who's Jack Kelly? O'Con- who's Kelly? Yeah. Jack O'Connell, who played Pukey in the film. Yeah. Kieran Hardcastle, who played Kez. Danielle Watson, who played Trev. Uh, Vicky McLeod, uh, Andrew Shim. The majority of the okay, gang really of were, were from. Um, Calton Television Workshop in Nottingham. So they all kind of sort of knew each other. Uh, me, sort of Tomo, uh, Joe Gilgan, Stephen, and say Joe Hartley were the only ones who, who didn't really know each other. George um, Newton as well. Um, so we, we didn't really know any of the, these people and they kind of knew each other a bit. So what Shane did in that first kind of week before we started, sh- before any cameras started shooting or anything, um, we just had a week in, in that, television workshop where them guys went of just uh playing really not even doing anything necessarily to do with um the film you know we were doing stuff like we had a talent show um where me and jack o'connell and kieran r castle like made a little rap um you know uh tomo and steven 
did a puppet show where Tomo was Stephen's puppet. <laughs> uh, you just mad shit like that. But what that does is, uh, and we went to Alton Towers. Um, what that does is, when we started filming, then we were mates. Yeah, we'd spent a and week. And that chemistry intense, is real. We, yeah, exactly. So going back to what same, so we did that on '86. Another week of kind of rehearsals. Going back to Hannah, um, and what Shane did then, he was like, right, okay, so he put us in sort of separate situations. So he's like, right, Woody, lol, you guys are going on a date. So here's some money. Go to Piccolino's, have a nice date, um, whatever. Uh, Tomo, I can't remember what Tomo's was. Um, Stephen, Graham, um, the cost, uh, makeup and costume came in, done him up like a homeless person. Like he looked like he was homeless. And Shane just said, go and spend the day in Sheffield, getting ignored by everyone. Didn't look like, you know, you wouldn't recognise him. He had a haircut that time as well because he was doing boardwalks. So his hair was quite long anyway. And and, and um, they, they did him up really well. And um, he went out all day um, being homeless. Like literally at one point, I think he said he was sat in a pub and someone came over and put him a pint and said, look, don't worry, mate. Like it'll, it'll all be okay kind of thing. And he, he felt shit because, you know, he's doing boardwalk empire. It all fucking is okay. And this poor bloke's just handed him a pint. Like it was dead nice. Um, and me and Hannah... So me, Hannah, and the little lad who was playing her son, Adam. Um, He's fantastic. He was as well, brilliant, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> My dad's from London. Um, we had to go out and have a date, uh, uh, but like a full date. So we we went to uh, we went out in Sheffield and um, we went to Pizza Hut. I wasn't allowed to have a full fat coke. Amazing. Like little things like like yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I'd order a drink and Hannah'd be like, no, no, diet coke for him. Like we we were sort of semi in character, but semi not. Yeah. Um, you know. We went and took the little lad on some, you know, like the little fair rides that they have in, in high streets and stuff, like little <laughs> bungee jump trampolines and that. Um, but he's brilliant. Yeah, but Hannah's yeah, fucking amazing, man. She's one of the funniest people I know, like genuinely is. It's happy, I'm again. I think I might be happy if I wasn't out with them and they're happy. It's a lovely place to be. Happy that the fires will abide and it's a shield. With a haircut smile and the mean and the style is a night out with the boss. But you win or you lose and it's them who choose. And if you don't win, then you've lost. So I want to go dark with you from the outset, if that's okay. Yeah. On a day like this, it's probably the last thing we should be doing. But then it's sort of in fitting with the narrative thread of the film, Eden Lake. I watched it for, I think, the sixth time last night. Yeah. And boy, oh boy, like one of my favorite horror films ever made. I think it's so gnarly and brilliantly done. Was that your first role outside of your projects with Shane? Did you do This Is England, Summer's Town, and then was that your um, first film? Or was no. it Scouting, so out of, scouting for me, Book before that? I went straight from This Is England and went back to Grimsby. Um, and Stephen Graham um, made a promise to my mum um, at the rap party saying, I promise you I will never let Tomo just go back to Grimsby and be forgotten. And he kept to his word. And within a couple of months, um, Stephen... What a, what a nice dude. Exactly. Like the, that Hands down, one of the most genuinely, amazingly beautiful people I've ever met. Um, and he rang me and he said, um, I'm doing this TV series called The Innocence Project. Um, and they want to come, want to meet you for, for an audition. And I was like, what's an audition? Because I've never done one. Um, Did so you not went, do one for This Is England? It wasn't really an audition. It was right, just a... Just sort of um, walk into the room and a... 
just sort of like a chemistry building thing, just sort of having a chat and a little, a little bit of improvisation, but not really an audition as such. Where you're reading rehearsed lines. So I, yeah, so I had to learn these lines, and I remember I was sat in there and my phone went off. Uh, <laughs> Good start. Uh, and it was Shane Meadows who was calling me. <laughs> Brilliant. And I answered it as well. Not like now, if my phone went off, I'd be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas it, it was like, oh, it's Shane. Hey, all mate, right, mate. All yeah, right. I'm just in an audition. Just an audition. <laughs> um, so that was a job, the second job that I ever went on to. Um, so I did about four weeks on that. And then it was, um, and then we went on to Eden Lake, would it have been? Yeah, Eden Lake, and then Summerstown, uh, Scouting Book, and oh, Eden Lake, Summerstown, and then Scouting Book, and then onwards, yeah. Wow. And yeah. I guess because you were fairly well known as a likeable kind of hero figure from This Is England, yeah. Eden Lake is a very different role, but... What I love about the way you play the role is, you know, you do some bad stuff in it. You cut out Michael Fassbender's tongue (laughs) with a a Stanley knife. But there's a vulnerability and a likability to you that I think makes you, even when you're doing dastardly stuff, a likable, amiable character. Because there's that beautiful scene where you're hiding in the trees as well. And the actress, whose name is... Kelly Riley. She's there and you're kind of like, you can see this look in your eye. You want to help her, don't you? And you go up to her and you go, Miss... Yeah. As if you're about to maybe offer that yeah. hand of friendship and she just goes, bang! That was exactly how I played it, as if to say, like, I, I was going to go up and say, look, I'm so sorry about everything that's happened, but if you go this way, go that way, I'll go this way and, like, send the lads a different way and you can get out. But, yeah, she just took it the wrong way. And, and you can't blame her, me. can you? No, 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 you of course not. can't blame her. No. So was, was that in the script or was that your that take was on the character? Just, and... just chatting with the, with the director, James Watkins, um... Just sort of like, how are we approaching this? Is he going up because he feels sorry for her? Because straight from the off, you can tell that Cooper didn't want to be there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, he's definitely he, under duress, isn't he? He's, he's, he's under peer pressure, which is what you see a lot of it nowadays, and maybe not to that extent, but you see a lot of peer pressure nowadays, and I've been a victim of it as well. Well, my lads are telling me to do one more Jager bomb on a Friday night, and I don't want to do it. Yeah. But just because the lads are going, do it, do it, it's that similar sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, you don't want to be left out. You don't want to be left out, so you just do it, and that's exactly what Cooper was doing, but on, on a bigger scale, you know. And you had obviously worked with Jack on This Is England, and mm. he in that film is despicable isn't it despicably great yeah yeah he's he's, he's brilliant yeah he's, he really really smashed that definitely yeah he's um he's uh he's an incredible baddie yeah yeah tell me about the scene when you cut out fassbender's tongue well that for the, shooting that the whole experience for that for me was was insane because i remember we shot the pilot um with a whole different cast i think there was only me and jack who was the same cast from the pilot to the film um and just around all that blood that I'd not seen before and I had to have my prosthetics and just having knives and just being like, just being a bit like, yeah, in the woods. And it was a, it was a big budget. So it was sort of all, it was all a bit of a mad experience for me. Um, but yeah, doing that, I was, obviously it was a, it was a rubber knife. Michael was saying, he pulled me aside and he was like, I want you to really go for it, make it look real. And, and they're the sort of things that you, you learn from people like Michael. You know, you, you want it to look as real as possible, and, and hopefully that's what we did. And there's that trust there. Is that what it's all about as an actor, with someone that you're going yeah. to those levels of the edge with, is you want to have that mutual respect and trust that you both know that the other guy is going to do as w- well as he can for the scene, and if that involves you being uncomfortable, then that's what the scene requires, that, uh, that's, and that's and, okay. Yeah, and that's something I learned from a very young age with Stephen. Um, there was a great scene in um, in This Is England when... Combo gets out of the car and headbutts um, Jack O'Connell's character, Pukey. Um, and Stephen 
catches him. You can hear it when you watch the film. You can hear the headbutt. And that was them two saying, right, this is what's happening. But it's all character. You need to trust me. There's a lot of respect involved. And, uh, yeah, that, that, that's exactly what Michael was like. He just said, I know that it might seem like you're hurting me, but you're not. You know, you, you were doing everything that needs to be done to make it look real and make the audience buy it. So, And I think with horrors as well, you've really got to do that. Otherwise, it can look like corny and shit, can't it? So. Well, what about the scene where you Fassbender's character's already dead and he's tied up to his partner and she's still alive mm. and you guys are all pouring petrol on him and then you set him alight. Now, that's obviously a horrendous scene. Mm. What's the mood like on a on a set for a, for a scene like that? How do you, like, lighten the mood or do you not? Um, I think it's important to, to stay professional um, in them sort of things and respect Michael and Kelly who are sat there uncomfortable in the in the pissing rain, <coughs> excuse me, in the pissing rain, sat on the floor covered in water and t- having to take themselves to a level that no human should ever have to go to. Um, so you have got a sort of, I think respect's a major thing in um, in in them sort of scenes. Um, and we did, we played it cool, and and, and like you said, it it all pays off when you watch the film because it just looks so incredibly real. Doesn't it? Mm. And then you get the little Asian kid, bless him, with the tie around yeah. him and set him up as well. <laughs> yeah. I can't, Spoiler I alert if you haven't seen the film, but if you haven't, you need to check it out because it is by far and away one of the best. I was saying to you earlier, it reminds me a lot. Have you seen the film Wolf Creek as no. well? It's a lot like that. That's an Australian similar sort of concept. Oh, really? But it's like that old Hills Have Eyes, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Basically, you go into a small town and yeah. you, you know, you uh, <laughs> rub the locals the wrong way and you reap <laughs> the fucking. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's weird talking about it. Actually, I've not watched um, I've not watched Eden Lake for God, it must be about six or seven years, maybe more. I mean, I remember when we when the film got released, I got a phone call from um, did I, I don't even think I had an agent at this point. Did I have an agent? No, I don't think I did. Um, but I got a phone call from, or my dad got a phone call saying Thomas, because of his age, isn't allowed to come to the premiere. Right. But if he can travel down to London and walk down a red carpet and do all the press. And then turn around and, and go home. That would be great. So you can imagine what my answer to that was. Sing <laughs> <laughs> it up, mister! Yeah, what I say, sir, yeah. Yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah. Get your hands in the air, sir! Woo! Yeah. And you will get no hurt, mister. No, no, no. I said, yeah. I said, yeah. I've been thinking about this because the show's ended. We finished filming a couple of months ago. It's been such a happy time. Bittersweet, is it? To come very, to an end? very bittersweet. Very bittersweet uh, because we've made so many friends. We've made friends with other actors and, and, and David and Dan. Very rarely that you can relate to bosses in the same way that we've related to them. And, you know, we now go forward and, and expect to make those friends for life on every job that we do. And it's probably not going to be like that. It's almost certainly not going to be like that. But I, I think... had a similar conversation with Thomas Turgus about oh, yeah. the whole This Is England experience. Yeah, of course. And he said, you know, he grew up in that world with those people yeah. and they're like family to him. And it's such, I think, a unique... Because there's, there's the idea of you're crafting and you're creating a great product. But yeah. obviously as well, you want to enjoy the process. Not of just of creating the characters, but of the actual filmmaking experience. Yeah. And it, for something like that, I mean, that's the benchmark it has to be, isn't it? Of Yeah. Five out of five. 
best experience ever. It has to be. It has to be. And, you know, I, I'm sure that, that we'll all learn eventually to not, to not chase that anymore and to know how special that was. That's why, that's why I'm kind of not that keen on rushing into something just yet. I think, yeah, yeah. I, I think that when, I when, that when you come out of that bubble and when you, when you come out of that machine that's been eight years long... I think I think to to rush into something else and make out like that you're trying to continue something you're trying to you're trying to make the gap as small as possible bridge the gap as quickly as you can and continue with something else I there's something about me that feels that that cheapens it slightly yeah and I I just feel that that you need to that you need to reflect or process a bit. as well right and yeah. decompress and exactly. reflect and appreciate yeah as I, want, as I said to my girlfriend shortly after, now is not a time to shine, now is a time to reflect, and they're basically the same thing. There you go. Yeah, so, <laughs> so we, uh, we, it's, been, it's been a brilliant time. And you're saying goodbye to Sam as well. Yeah, well, yeah, that's the other breakup element of it, isn't it? It's, it's a real breakup. someone you've lived with for, is it eight years? You eight said? years, yeah. and, and, and you get to, you get to you, because these characters are so vivid, and 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 by the especially by you know, season six seven you feel that you know them so well you do feel that they exist outside of you, and you feel that they exist outside of the show. Like in between the end of, say season six and the start of season seven, you completely get the impression that they've been doing stuff. It's not like it's not like the light goes out on them and then they disappear. Then we come back at the start of season seven and we pick up where we left off. They've all progressed in between seasons. But, but you feel that you know them as people so well that you can get a sense of their existence outside of you. They're a completely separate entity. And when you play Sam or when you play any of these characters, it's like you're just visiting them again. And you're going into their skin and you're kind of channeling them. Hello, old friend. Hello, old friend, yeah. exactly. And it's nice, to, it's nice to get back in touch with them like that. And you do feel that, that f- while you're playing him for that season, you do feel that you get to shoulder some of his pain for a while. It's like, I'll take it away from you and I'll put this skin on. And I know this skin hurts. And I know that this skin is, uh, you know, brings you a lot of misery. But while we're filming this, I'll take it on. And I'll experience some of these things for you. I'll experience your discomfort and your pain. And, and looking forward to season eight, I can't say too much, but there's a bit more pain left to come. Talk me through when you four, Tim, Brad, Zach, and yourself, come together as one. And I imagine, maybe I'm over-romanticizing, but maybe I'm not, was the chemistry instantly evident? It was. It was, yeah. The first time we played together was August of 91. I think August 30th or 31st of 91. Um, and we had, you know, Tim and, Tim and uh, Zach had known each other for some time. Brad and I had played together. But when the four of us finally got in the room... Um, it sounded like Rage Against the Machine, you know, like yeah. it, it, uh, it, it, but, but that you we would say that now where people like, like Rage Against the Machine, right? nobody knew or liked Rage Against the Machine. It sort of sounded like that music and it was fun to play. We had no ambitions of ever getting a record deal, no ambitions of playing a show in a club. We didn't think that we had the, the sort of ethnic 
you know, like there were no, there was no multiracial neo-Marxist punk metal hip hop groups playing the LA scene. No one was looking for that band. Yeah. No one was that, th those bands were not selling tickets because there weren't those bands. Um, so we just wrote this music for ourselves and, and, but the, with the, the performance performance in r rehearsal had the same feral intensity as later live shows. So we just were like getting, we're going to make a tape and we're going like, to give it to our friends. I remember the, I remember the first person that heard Rage Against the Machine. The first person. He was a, <clears throat> we were rehearsing in kind of like an industrial complex. This guy that was a worker, this Mexican American guy was a worker. He just, we'd sort of see him outside and he's like, what are you guys doing? There's like, we're a band and we're practicing. He's like, can I hear? He's like, sure. So he comes in, he sits down, we play him a few songs. He's like, this music makes me want to fight. <laughs> <laughs> right on. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we're on to something. We play it, boxing matches or something like that. Is it true that you put out a one ad saying, um, seeking socialist vocalist who likes Sabbath and Public Enemy? Yes, I did. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm obviously sure. you found the guy that... Well, no, he didn't answer that ad. That was, <laughs> no? yeah, that was a couple of years before I met Zach, but eventually sort of <laughs> all took a while. rounded into shape. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, Brad yeah. had his right that said, uh, drummer that loves John Bonham and James Brown. Yes, yeah. He absolutely did. And that's... that's him to a T. Yeah. I loved when you brought out that covers album. It was such a fitting end to yep. an amazing, you know, run. And I think that everybody who didn't perhaps know bands like KRS One or Devo, sure, 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 got an insight into that like musical makeup that That's made right. up the band. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, Dylan and yeah, yeah, EPMD I think is on there. I've, uh, yeah, and Dylan. Yeah, it's like the the we drew from a lot of different sources to you know to come with that. Eddie Stew. Do you have, I don't know whether you get asked this a lot or whether you can even answer it honestly, but do you have a favorite record from Rage's uh, it'd be the, initial uh, three? I mean, my, my instinct is just say the first one, you know, because yeah. the first one was made with such innocence and yeah. with really the expectation that no one was going to hear it, like first records are. You don't, uh, um, you know, expectations were none and we just recorded our songs. And at the time, I thought we kind of captured about 70 to 75% of what we were. And, you know, listening back to it now, I'm like, wow, we must have been super good because that record sounds pretty great. It's like, exceptional, I, yeah, isn't yeah, it? And weren't a lot of the actual just demo versions of the songs what would eventually just make the final Yeah, yeah, album? yeah. yeah. Bolt, Bolt in the Head is the, is the demo that made it onto the record. It's like just verbatim, which is pretty crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. Could you look back at the early years in your career and in your life with fondness still, despite some of the, you know, painful and difficult memories that are obviously now undoubtedly attached to that time period because of, you know, the loss of certain lives from within that scene? Yeah. Are you able to still look back and have happy memories and smile and, or has it been tainted almost by that? No, it's stigma? totally tainted. It is. Absolutely. Um, I have a hard time divorcing it from reality, and I'll never get over that stuff, ever. You know, um, that's hard for people to to imagine. I think, you know, I think it's not hard in their own lives, but it's hard to imagine that things like that can happen, and you just move on. It's okay. You know, I'm not in that much denial with my own emotions. You know. Um, um, 
And, uh, you know, I pretty much say whatever I think. Don't hide a lot of stuff along those lines. And I think that's hard for people to deal with. Especially considering that, that we never had massive multi-platinum success or any of that sort of thing. It, it delegitimizes what you're doing. People think that, you know, you're just jealous. I couldn't be. What, what, there's nothing there for me to be jealous of. You know, what? You know, it's a horrible, horrendous, horrendous nightmare ending in tragedy. And, you know, honestly, I wish none of it would have ever happened. And he was still alive. That would have been a lot better, much better ending. Um, I don't care about the money or fame or all that stuff. It's just horrible. What good did it do? You know? I mean, it didn't do any good. It's just a nightmare. And if people want to look at that with some kind of nostalgia and the good old days type of thing, I just don't see how suicide and heroin addiction are romantic in any way. Were you close with Chris as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. We knew all those guys really well. Yeah. It's it's just a fucking nightmare. It's just a, a nightmare, you know? And um, um, I think those guys have a problem, too, because I say whatever I want, you know, and so then they portray me as being crazy, which I'm absolutely not crazy, you know, <laughs> not crazy. I'm just not one of their boot boys. So, you know, I'm not going to just go along with whatever, whatever they want. I don't know what they want, really. Honestly, I have no idea, you know. Um, but what I do, instead of focusing on that sort of thing, I just keep my head down and work. That's it. No one can so. accuse you of slacking on that department. Nope. This is what I do. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And um, I've been in, I've been put in a position where I can make this work. I can go out and, and make a living playing music. And the way that I make that happen is by not compromising anything I'm doing. And um, that is what is what has worked for me. But um, and I'm not going to ruin that. So you know. The greatest accomplishment of my life was uh, talking my wife into marrying me. That was great. And um, that will be there long, as long as nothing happens to either one of us, long after any of this stuff is gone. So, you know, really that is the most important thing to me. Certainly not the music, you know. Um, uh, you know, I could get my arms chopped off tonight and that would be the end of it. She's not leaving, you know. So, what's more important? I mean, your life outside of your career has been, you know, quite the ride, hasn't it? And you've obviously been to some low places and triumphed. Mm. And, and I wonder if you wouldn't mind just sort of talking me through the the introduction <clears throat> into your life of, you know, narcotics. When I was a young man, I was a mid-teen, I was 15. I had never drank. I, and the kids drinking at 12 these days. I had a first drink at my cousin's wedding when I was 15. And I ended up waking up in a pig farm after one bottle of cider. And I, looking back, I go, I should have known then there was a problem. And I didn't really take another drink till I was 18. Started drinking beer because I was jealous of my friends that could drink beer. Had beer, beer, beer bellies, you know. 
Then I started drinking a little bit more when I joined Big Purple. John Lord was drinking fine cognac. So I sort of get a, a taste for the fine cognac. I wasn't drinking alcoholically. The alcoholic in me came out when I found the drug thing. I want to be perfectly clear, clear here for anybody listening that wants to address this. Um, back in the early 70s, there was no such thing as addiction of cocaine. And, you know, it was a pretty much a thing we didn't know about. Yeah. You know, cocaine was a drug for people that had money that could afford to buy it. <clears throat> people were giving it to me because I was famous. <laughs> yeah. You know, go figure. And, you know, I thought, you know, I'll have a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Didn't realize it was a problem until it was a problem. Did I want to become an addict? Absolutely not. Did I enjoy it? Absolutely not. Could I stop? Absolutely not. Did I want to? Towards three or four years of that behavior? Yes. But it's difficult when you're involved in it and you're 28 years old. And, you know, um, sitting in my home in LA at that time, just wallowing in, in, in nothing, just sitting around doing nothing, but having a little fun with my mates, you know, and then realizing um, this isn't life. Then, of course, you know, when I got sober, I had, less, I, I had 15 years in the wilderness. Was that how long it was? So from it was, was a, it from, I, it, from 1976 or, so to 1991 yeah. were the years where if anybody out there met me, I don't remember it because I was not the man I am today. I say this with respect. I won't change that because I'm now, it's made me the man I am today. Um, It may have seemed like I lost 15 years, but I'm a, I'm a way better person than I am. That I mean, I'm so changed. I'm such a different man. And I'm one of the lucky ones that had a divine intervention from my higher power, causing a heart attack on Boxing Day 1991 to a lot, a lot of cocaine. When I say cocaine, please, I'm not being grandiose. It was a thing that a lot of people were doing back then, you know, in the entertainment business, you know, actors and athletes, athletes as well, and and uh, movie stars, rock stars. <clears throat> and as you say, if you're in that world, everybody around you is just putting it in front of you, aren't they? It it for and this is going to sound a little bit weird, but when you're in profile, when you've got a lot of followers, when you've got a lot of people following you, you. People give you stuff. I've been given cars, horses, women, drugs, and a quite ridiculous list of things. <laughs> what is the most single most ridiculous thing you've ever been given, Glenn? Well, a horse, because I didn't yeah. have nowhere to put it. <laughs> and it was a beautiful horse, and I really felt bad about it. But for me, I am one of the unlucky ones that... I didn't set on the path to become an addict. I thought I was having some fun. And so I, 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 a lot of videos of me having fun were not fun. Looking back at them, I'm going, well, my body movements, my composure, I was talking too much. I, I didn't look like Glenn. 
I've studied myself in in recovery. Yeah, of course. I work with other people in recovery for years now. Behavior. I was one of the lucky ones. I won't name names, but there are people who have done drugs like me that have never recovered from it with their talent has suffered. They're still alive, but they never quite came back. They have not been able to fulfill their dreams and wishes. And potential, right? They may have made the money, but they can't regain the, the challenge to perform. I'm one of the lucky ones. People say that I sing better now in 2018 than I did in 1976. Very simple. I was inebriated, stoned, couldn't breathe properly, couldn't stand up properly. My paranoia. And you take away those things, you give me a microphone now, and it's on. I still have that same passion, um, that same attitude now, uh, probably more so uh, because I'm confronted by um, a music industry that I find appallingly distasteful. Artists who are disgustingly um, unappreciative don't hold back, Mike. Tell us what you really think. M- millennials <laughs> who haven't got a fucking clue what they're doing and think they're entitled to everything in the world, who have no respect for people from the past, even five years before their precious little lives began. So I think the dilemma that I'm faced with now is a much greater one, is that I don't like the people in the business now. So even if they changed my songs now and I liked it, I wouldn't say I liked it because I wouldn't like them. Yeah. Um, I think the personalities of people are sort of like the computers they make their music. Well, there are none. And I'll agree with you because I had a conversation with my mate last night, actually, and he was playing XTC making plans for Nigel. And that's just one example of one song that is so incredible and quirky and perfect. And I said, name me one song in the last 10 years that's as good as that one song. And that's yeah. just a random yeah. song from the 80s in which there were songs like that being churned out every week. Mm. Well, these amazing bands, yeah. like The Police, like everything. Yeah. And I agree with you on that front, is mm. that pop music, I mean, there's still great music. Underground music still exists in kind of a, oh, a varied and exciting but format. It's but it's not pop the music, music that, we are, that we're getting offered. No, pop music is garbage nowadays. Absolute it's dreadful. It's uh, and and I and, and and sometimes I think, oh, Mike, you're just getting old, man. You, you you can't think like this. But and I'll take another listen and I'll go, no, I'm not no, getting old. Just shit. It is shit. <laughs> and I think it's the it it's. The, I'm only thirty two, and I feel that way. Yeah. Well, it comes from the personalities of the artists who are making it. They're all so fucking caught up in taking fucking selfies. 
Can we get a selfie at the end of this interview? Ugh. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but, you know, put the fucking phone down. Think about, are you in this business to make music? Or are you in this business to, to be, be rich and famous and, yeah. and, and a celebrity? Yeah. If you are, I want nothing to do with you. I guess the birth of that as well was the reality television shows like Pop Idol and X Factor. And that was maybe the, the turning point in which yeah, you just be famous. It all sort of started to happen at the same time. Yeah, um, with, with and, the internet and yeah. Yeah, and Simon Cowell, uh, who is great at what he does, yeah. I, I find what he does to be some of the most disgustingly awful crap that I've ever seen in my life. I Those found his shows, trous- trouser line offensive as well. No, I, I don't long. have anything against him. I, 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 <laughs> or his trouser line. <laughs> yeah, or his trouser line. I think he's a fucking genius Yeah, doing what, what he's he doing. Yeah. But, what he does but it's what he's pain. done to this business, probably without any he's malicious not, intent. Yes, he's, yeah, yeah. Not, he's not trying to destroy the business, mm. but he has single-handedly reduced the quality of this business by about 90%. And what he's offered us in return for our, uh, for our uh, lack of great music is... These celebrities, these personalities, I don't give a fuck about these dickheads. I don't care about these little puny idiots that win these fucking stupid shows. They're not making music. They're fucking boneheads, a lot of them. They can't sing. They look like idiots. All they do is take fucking pictures of themselves, and I'm sick to death of the whole thing. Stop doing it, for God's sake. Simon, take a break for 10 years or something, you know? That would be my advice, is let the business get back to the music, you know? Let's take it away from these TV shows. And, and it, it's an era. He's done great. and I, I, all More power to him for that. I, I would like to be that successful myself, you know, in what I do. He's, he, he's a genius at that. But he's fucked up the music business. And that, along with... No more record sales and this idiotic streaming concept where nobody actually owns a record anymore and they don't even understand the concept of owning a record, the value of owning a record. Along with that has come this endless stream of kids in their bedrooms with their fucking laptops making this boring, banal music with fucking loops and beats and... Everybody sounds as stupid as each other. Stop this nonsense. Please, come on. You know, we need, we need a new fucking band with an attitude to come and kick everybody in the ass. You know, some, some of that great indie rock that's out there that we never get to hear. Let's hear it. We need to hear it, you know? must have seen firsthand some quite extreme stuff on stage and the fans reactions oh yeah to him at that point in particular right 
Oh, the, the flaying themselves Monica on stage and the, 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 all the chairs that were piled up on the stage. Santa Monica. We only played about fifteen minutes. Complete right. Lovely, beautiful. <laughs> yeah. But the, then that the gigs after that then became a bit heavy politically. If anyone gets on the stage, we're going to shut the gig down, and the amount of ambulances were there in case anyone got hurt. It got quite heavy at one point. It's interesting as well because a lot of those fans, I guess, were and probably continue to be male. Right, it's, and that's quite a unique thing that he has. I think that not many other artists have is almost this appeal over, if you want to call it heterosexual like males, a, like a lads band. Yeah, well, that's, but expressing themselves in almost I mean, like a the kind Pogue's of madness, the faces—they all kind of like lads bands. But it it does change. It's really really odd. We, we go to different countries and we'll say, "Did you notice the amount of young girls that were at the front of the gig?" It was predominantly. Or predominantly older, or particular, or you know, it's it changes. In- well, let me ask you about this because one of my favourite areas of the Morrissey fan base, and the most fascinating to me, is the Latino. Oh yeah, um, and obviously there's that great band Mexrosy yeah. that cover his songs in that style. Um, how does that start? Is that just because of his move over to the states and his exposure over there within perhaps those kind of Latino communities within LA, and then it just spread from there? Yes, I would assume so. I mean, I, I don't really, I can't place it down to one reason or one song or, or or one occasion. But it grew very fast uh, between his heartfelt lyrics and the and the and the Mexican culture. They just took him to heart, and it's it's a lovely thing to behold. Closer I get, you're wasting your time. The more you ignore me, the closer I get, you're wasting your time. Corn, out oh, on the yeah. road with them. So I think they did like a biohazard tour before that or whatever. And when we met them, they were very apprehensive. We were like, I remember the first show was in Georgia. And they were all sitting at the bar eating. And I got my food. And I went and I said, hey, what's up, guys? There was a, you know, like old, whatever. And then as the tour went on, we became, you know, friend friendly or whatever. It wasn't like, oh, I love you. But it was cool. And then, you know, uh, a few years later, we're doing, in 97, we're doing the Warp Tour. And we're playing in Philly. And Corn was on Lollapalooza. And we're playing in Philly. And we're going, you know, having a great show. And I corner my eye, I see these two guys with dreads like rocking out on the side of the stage. I'm like, ah, you know, fucking warped to a dirt ass, come up on stage. <laughs> and I'm walking off stage, and it's monkey in head, and they're like, yo, what's up? And they're hugging me, and I'm like, what the fuck are you guys? I thought you were on Lollapalooza. Go, we had the day off, and we told them, we got to come here to see you guys. I was like, really? And then fast forward again a few more years, we're playing some huge festival in Belgium, and we're headlining the second stage, and Korn's the main act, and they had this artist area. And then the security comes, and they go, Corn is coming through to their room. Everybody has to go into your cabins. And we're like, that's some rock star bullshit. You know, we all get in our room and all of a sudden, and we're like, yeah, all right. We open the door and it's all the guys from Corn. Instead of going to their room, they came to say hello to us. And it's really cool that years later, we're talking to them and they were like, yeah, we're lifers, you and us. That's how it is. We saw it in the, in the, and we were talking to them and they go, you guys treated us so good. And we're like, we were just nice to you. We didn't like, we were, but they told us horror stories, even from Biohazard. When they were on it with Biohazard, who weren't that big at the time, 
But the bass player, the lead singer, Biohazard, treated them like dicks, treat them like shit. And they even said to Biohazard, the guy said, you would have been on the uh, Family Values Tour, but the bass player was a fucking dick. <laughs> so, I mean, we were always nice to everybody because you never know, you know? It's not rocket science either, is it? Exactly. It's like you just sort of treat people how you yourself would hope to be exactly. treated in return. We've had some shit ass. We've never been treated like shit from a band, maybe through their management and a band played it off, but... Uh, we've had roadies, like guitar techs of metal bands that we've toured with that were fucking absolute assholes to us. And we were just like, there was a, a case on the Slayer tour, this guitar tech, the first night we played, you know, we're going out to Slayer crowd. We're not that heavy. We're not as heavy as Slayer, but we have energy and we have aggression. So me and Pete were all over the place. We were running up on fucking stacks, you know, yeah. running up on the monitors, on the, everything. The next night, we go, we get ready to go on stage, and there's fucking all this red tape everywhere. And he goes like, you can't cross these lines. And Pete was like, fuck that. You can throw me off the tour. And we just did our regular show. And he threw a hissy fit, and he had the manager come and yell at us. And the manager's yelling at us, and I go, I'll fucking go home now. I don't give a shit. You know, we were kids. We were te- not even teenagers. We were in our 20s. But we were like, I don't give a fuck. You know, we were fine in our world. But Tom Araya asked us to do the tour. Not you. Not the fucking guitar tech. So after that, everything was cool. Like, I guess Tom spoke to the managers like, no, let them do what they want. We asked them for this on this tour for a reason. And it was funny. But I think in protest, the guitar tech almost every night would set up a road case just visible from the crowd. And he would lay down on it and pretend to sleep during our set. I was like, who give a shit? Yeah. <laughs> you look like a lazy shit than me. Yeah, fucking hell. There's so much politics involved with that oh, side of it, isn't there? You know, like a band like Sepultura took us out. How good were they back then as a live band? Oh, fuck yeah. I never got to see him with that lineup. They were fucking great. It was awesome. He used to hit so hard. He had this bell. It was like a, you know, like an upside-down bell for, for the cymbals. It was so thick, he took chips out of it every fucking night. We're like, how the hell do you break that with a wooden <laughs> stick? You know? And, uh, but they were one of those bands that, like, I remember, like, three days into the tour, our, us and Napalm Death were sharing a bus and sharing a sound man, and our sound was like, man... Uh, uh, Sepultura's uh, sound guy keeps coming up in the middle of my sets like with you guys especially and Napalm he makes me pull it down pull it down and then Igor happened to be standing in the door he goes oh really he goes do you just do what you want to do tonight so then we were playing and I guess we were told later that the Napalm guy sound came up and the sound man came up and he was like turn that shit not Napalm uh, Sepultura's sound guy came up he just told him turn it down turn it and all of a sudden, he gets tapped on the shoulder. And Igor's there. He goes, no, no, no. Let him fucking do what he wants. Because Igor goes, he said, to, he goes, we're not afraid of anybody. You know, we want to have somebody to make us play better. To Up push us. Yeah. And that's something we learned from them. We would find, like, we'd go out with bands. <clears throat> and, like, in the early 90s, there was this new wave of hardcore coming in that was uh, uh, Snapcase, Earth Crisis, and Strife. More metallic more groove oriented you know they learned from helmet and they learned from other shit like that and they were the bands that people would go off to and we were like fuck it we're taking snapcase out and we did because every night it made us push ourselves that much harder you know Shopping night, got the future of your life. Let's not face back, just back, build to last. Old school, all the new, does it be 
How do you feel at the moment as an American traveling? Do you feel like there's kind of negative press and attention on your country with the man with the the orange face? Not to go too political with you. Because you know, I, 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 when the Brexit news went through, and I was like, oh my God, we voted that through. And I found a slight, subtle change in people's behavior and attitude towards oh, me really? in certain places around Europe when I went. And I can understand it because they're like, well, you don't want to be a part of this. So yeah. you're obviously going to then well, you know, I, I feel think, like an outsider, aren't you? I think, <laughs> I think there's people that, you know, you know, and the, you know what's crazy is the gnarliest I was ever treated was during the Bush administration. Right. And, you know, I would get into physical, like, arguments with people. I'm like, you know, just because, you know, he's the president doesn't mean I voted for him, you know? And, and, and so it's, it's kind of, if you think about the type of person who's going to give you shit about, you know, someone that's in charge, they don't under really understand the, the you know, political system in America, you know, that you yeah. vote people in and, yeah. and that just you know not everyone's the same and you know i the thing the thing that i've noticed and the, the what i've gotten out of um all of this is that the, the media is just insane and takes things and spins them for an angle on both sides the right and the left yeah and it's like that's the thing that I think is really frustrating about it all is because you're never going to get a straight answer from people that are, their job is to give you a straight answer. You know, I took a journalism course once and the first rule of journalism is to provide an unbiased, you know, story of a situation. And that's the last thing you're ever going to find. And so, you know, I think the the whole thing. It's just fear as well, isn't it? It's fear and distraction and, well, trying to divide yeah, and it is you know and it's and, and and all it's really done is just turn people off yeah and, and so many americans just don't even bother with politics anymore like it's just it's not worth their time you know and there's crusaders for this and crusaders for that but it's it's it feels like it's really died down because so many people are just deleting their facebooks and the news sources they're just not even watching it anymore and whether that's good or bad, I don't really know, but it's just kind of like the way things are. People are just tired of it, you know, yeah. being berated with stuff. And, you know, there's two types of people, you know, there's there's crusaders and there's people that respect each other's opinions, you know. And, you know, I don't, I haven't really run into any anybody even really asking me about it over here, you know, or, or having a really an opinion, you know. Yeah. I think people are getting worn out. <laughs> I think as well at the moment, you're almost not allowed. Well, it's not that you're not allowed, but if you express your opinion, especially on the internet, like it's different if you're having a conversation like this because people have taken the time to get 45 minutes into this chat and mm-hmm. they've got the context. They're not just seeing a headline. But I do feel like if you express your opinion on anything online and somebody doesn't agree with it, they'll shout in your face and tell you why you're not allowed that opinion yeah. because it's just different to theirs. And you're like, well, when did we get to this? Like, that's fascism to me. Yeah, like, <laughs> exactly. You know, and just, you know, throttle jockeys, you know, and people that, you know, the, the, I, I, heard, I heard a quote one time, and, and, and I think it's, it, it so pertains to, um, to what you just said is like, and, and to the internet or to media, you know, it's like the internet's greatest strength by connecting all of these people and ideas is also its greatest weakness. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. And so, 
Um, what do you do with your kids? Do you allow them sort of free reign, limited access? What's your approach to parenting when it comes to social media and smartphones and all of that? Because I guess nowadays kids at such a young age have them and it's the norm that yeah. I imagine they're probably made to feel left out if they don't and like unpopular or 100%, 100%. Um, you know, I think that in parenting, the the best thing you can do is lead by example, you know, and that's how kids learn. My daughter has, and I hope she doesn't listen to this, uh, <laughs> you know, kids communicate through Instagram. Yeah. It's just how they do it. And I have her Instagram account on my phone and I go through it, you know, just half of it or the most part is to protect her from things that might possibly enter her life through yeah, yeah. something like that. Um, but, you know, it's the world we live in, you know, it's like it was probably, you know, like television for me, you know, when I was a kid, you know, it's like corrupting the youth. It is, yeah. you know, and, and it did, yeah. you know, but, <laughs> you know, I think. You know, there's certain things that are just the way they are in the world. And this is one of them, you yeah. know. And, you know, I try to teach my kids to use the Internet in a positive way, like as a tool. You know, it's like anything that you want to know how to do, you can look it up on YouTube. And there will be an instructional video on, you know, how to mow your lawn. You yeah. Know? And you know, I sound like a curmudgeon when I'm just like, if I wanted to learn somehow to go to the library and check out a book, <laughs> you know, <laughs> dinosaur. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, um, so, so you feel like it can be a positive influence if dealt with. Well, if they use it as a tool, yeah. you know, f to further their education, absolutely. You know, but it, does that happen? Well, you know, they like to watch YouTube videos of people playing video games or something. You yeah. Know? And I'm like, isn't it wild that kids don't really i mean i don't really have interaction with with kids because i don't have any but i'm aware of the fact that they don't really text anymore even texting is like an outdated yeah thing. it is yeah I that's mean, crazy well, well yeah it is it is <laughs> it blows my mind and i don't really and like the idea of a phone call is probably just you know they don't do it do they kids don't phone each other up anymore yeah. what i loved about being young and i guess i did love it at the time other. but you're yeah i like the idea of when you had to call a girl that you likes home phone before mm -hmm. mobiles yeah. knowing their parent was probably going to answer oh, and you had to man up yeah. and be like yeah it's Matt from school there's so and so there <laughs> that, that's character building that kind of stuff isn't it it, it, it was terrifying <laughs> yes and then you know now con contacting people is, is pretty easy you know and yeah it is it, yeah I mean we, I could sit here and reminisce about all the you know <laughs> But it, it's funny because, you know, I, I come from a family, you know, it's like, yeah, my dad used to have to walk uphill both ways in the snow to school, you know, like that kind of thing. And, yeah, and yeah, I'm yeah. the same way, you know, I'm just like, oh, man, I need to look up, you know, a book or do this and that. <laughs> Shut up.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah.